And Father, now we ask your, your, your presence um, with us as we study your word and understand your church. We do thank you, Lord, that, uh, that when you left us uh, from this earth in Christ, that you didn't leave us without your presence, a presence that's carefully choreographed and designed so that we could be assured that you are truly with us, um, so that the, the patterns and the, of sound words that you gave us included uh, instructions as to how uh, to worship, how to govern, uh, be governed, and, and to know that it's a government that comes from you. So it's important, Lord, that you'd help us to understand, especially this government, and um, how we work within it, uh, so that we can have that assurance of your presence and your care to watch over us as our ultimate overseer. So with that, Lord, bless our conversation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So everyone should have the handouts. Um, I assume everybody's got them. Um, we are, uh, you know, we're going to be working through the issue of, uh, you know, last week, or last time, the, the discussion on the preliminary principles of church power, I can't emphasize again how how fundamental those, that, that discussion is. It's probably the most important discussion we'll have all, all year. And I hope that you're beginning to think in those in, in terms of, okay, so if, if, if this is the nature of church power, its extents, its limits, etc., you know, well, okay, now how we, we would now want, uh, before we could um, impose a government on anyone, um, based on our limitations of power, as we saw last time, we got to go to the Word, and we've got to really be assured that there's something there that we can, enough there that we can be assured that we're governing the flock of God in a manner that's uh, consistent with what's the rule, by good and necessary inference of Scripture. And as you can tell, I hope you enjoyed um, that, you know, we, you know, as you know, I'm going to teach you, we're going to be honest, um, that essay that I gave you, so you have three essays. One, uh, the first one we're going to be looking at is, is Torrance and the eldership. And... Um, I hope you, you, you got a sense for the, the church history of wrestling with that issue. Um, it, it's, it's beyond dispute that there's a government and that there's elders and there's all that stuff, as we'll see. But looking at the form, how does it, how does it actually get structured? And um, I, hope, I, I really think it's, a, it's an ecumenical document to some degree. You begin to realize within the Reformed communion, and I include that, the Anglican, the, the Reformed, the Presbyterian, etc., we really have a lot of overlap, and and we even with the Anglican community, um, you begin to say, "Oh gosh, yeah, see, our you know." So he kind of played that out for you a little bit, but most importantly, just helping you see a, a position that we'll interact with um, in relation. But I wanted you to see the American, the 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 specific PCA, which some people describe as a kind of uniquely American way of doing the eldership. I felt. In conscience compelled, I guess, that I had to put that into its context. It's probably one of the, what I, I suspect is one of our weaker uh, uh, aspects denominationally, is trying to, to understand that issue, and we've struggled with it. I mean, when you have a book of church order and you don't even have a job description for pastors, you got a problem. <laughs> you know, so, so a lot of people in our tradition know that. We, we were working on it, and, um, and so I, I gave you that there. But I hope that was helpful for you. But, but, but it's all, I want you to keep the spirit of it, though. Uh, and then you go to Withrow. 
and uh, we're going to look now at having discerned offices and what those offices are, more or less, um, and where that comes from in Scripture, especially redemptive historical. We then want to turn to the issue of, okay, then, then especially when the church acts jointly, how do we, how do we function? <laughs> and that's Witherow, uh, trying to make a case for uh, our polity which I think is a very simple and yet very, uh, I think, helpful read. So I hope you enjoyed that. And we're going to break up into small groups. I've asked Kevin to, to lead that portion of the discussion, and we'll give a good 45 minutes to an hour on that. And then finally, we're going to uh, review, uh, I had you skim. It's interesting coming in. Most people were talking about it. But the little D. David Gordon article on, um, on uh, how to argue. And uh, and and making that statement, I guess that you noticed, you know, that argument's good. And I think some of the WLB, I don't see any session members except for Kevin here, but I think you can appreciate. I, I mean, I, I this is a real important issue, and and it's very concerning to me when I don't see deliberation in my session. Uh, very concerning uh, when I see efficiency start to push out deliberation, because we could truly lose the heart and soul of confessionalism when we do that. And so uh, hopefully that argument gave a little boost to that. And, and, uh, but more than that, began to also expose the ways in which we can deliberate. I like the word deliberation more than arguing, but he, he, I think he's worth But the way we can deliberate in a manner that helps, it, it's a corporate collective effort to find the truth. And, and to, when you believe that fundamentally, that this isn't a CEO, this isn't a prophet, Preston, you know, coming into session meeting with motions, grounds, and now let's just approve it like a board. Um, I, I hesitate to ever use the word board, um, we, even though we call it WLB, which has a history why. But, but, um, but, you know, a board, you know, you have staff, and, and they're basically trying to get their work approved by a board, you know, and so you're you're coming up with it. You're playing politics. You're doing backroom conversations, and when the church is reduced to a boardroom mentality in terms of how we govern, I don't even have a strong enough word for how bad that is. Um, you know, because we don't believe that any individual is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. We believe the church acting collectively is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So that wisdom comes collectively, you know, and so it takes time to have a collective engagement. So there's your, there's your uh, outline for today. Uh, three major portions, sections, if you will. Hopefully you have a little break in between. And um, any questions about the assignment and what we're doing? Does that comport what we're doing? All righty. Um, by the way, I, I just happened to see, Janine, I guess you copied Hugenberger's paper. I, if you got the revised, remember, we're working off the revised syllabus. The woman in ministry is going to come later. But, so did you think it was today? I didn't know if you did or that just happened to come out. But um, um, but anyway, that's that's not today if you're expecting that. Anybody else think that that, that was today? Okay, good. So keep in mind, we're off. We're working on a revised syllabus. I gave it to you. It's, it's the only one that's in the CCB, um, so you should be able to... Uh, follow it. It should have 215 on it, not 214. Um, and so for next week, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're really going to be getting into um, what we, what it's called discipline, but uh, I use discipline, I hope you, you know by now, discipline in the full orb, holistic sense. So really, you could just as well call next week life on life discipleship or shepherding. It really gets onto the shepherding task. So your main book is going to be, we're going back to the uh, shepherd leader book. 
and that's going to be your main reading. Um, I would say I gave you some specific uh, instructions of what to read, but I'd say read as much of it as you can because you're going to be reading it anyway. So if you get into it and you just want to keep on reading, just keep on reading. Um, but that is a really excellent book, and I will we'll, I'll be supplementing that with a few other little things. Um, the Ray piece that sort of just argues for discipline. Um, I wanted to give you that argue, argument. And then, um, and then I'll have some other stuff that we've kind of put together here in the church, like life on life discipleship. And we'll talk some about the role of small group ministry in relationship to shepherding. And we'll have a few other things that we'll, we'll, we'll start getting into. But I'll, I hope you'll see though that, that next week we kind of transition a little bit to, from this sort of, um, theory abstract sort of conversations to, the, what I call preliminary principle sort of stuff that we've been doing. Next week, you're really going to start talking about how do you do it. Um, or next month, I should say. Um, don't get scared. I didn't just pull one on you. <laughs> so uh, that's where we're going, and that's the big picture. So with that, um, y'all ready to start? So could someone turn to 2 Timothy 1.13? This thing it just came off again. I'll tell you, this thing, we need some tape. 113. Anybody have it in front of them? i got to get my Bible out, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. So follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Well, go ahead and read the next one, yeah. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Okay, thank you. Um, what did you hear there? Very simple, but what are you hearing? Two main things. Okay. What? Follow what? The faith and love. That which, that which has been entrusted to you. Good. Ah, oh, so there's a trust fund or trust, an intellectual, well, that's not the word. There's a theological, there's a uh, ecclesial trust. Immediately, you, you just get this idea, uh, these trustworthy. Uh, what, what is he, how does he describe that trust? What, what's, the, what's the contents of it? Okay, sound, which means the word there is uh, it's a medical term. It means healthy, complete, whole, uh, healthy, especially in the context of wholeness. Like you're you're not, you know, deficient of something. Um, so there's a wholeness to this this this. You know, you're starting to get some description here. What else did we hear about it? This pattern. Did you hear the word pattern? What is that talking about? Well, why would he say pattern? Pattern of sound words. What does that? What does that seem to stimulate in your head? Okay, good. Well, that's that's where it's, that's a translation that's trying to get at that word, and it really it's a it's a decent one because it's a pattern that is one that's been the standard is an authorized word. You hear the word authorized pattern a system. It's really the whole system of. What we call uh, theology, polity, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's system. It's the it's it's a system, though. There's something that's that's going on there again, organic in nature, and uh, and then where does it come from again? In that passage, the second part. Yes. Yeah. What was that second verse that you read? The second part. I mean, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. Yes, by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's come from God, entrusted to us, and we're tasked with then guarding it. 
So I, I say that because, um, you know, I, I think there's just, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, and I think Kevin's going to come back to this a little bit when he when we introduce the uh, Witherow, and Witherow gets to it, but how many of us have grown up, even maybe within the PCA, where a conversation about polity, that is how we organize ourselves as a church, government, whatever you describe it, is just viewed with a bit of disdain. Or a bit of, well, that's not really an essential element of the gospel. I mean, that's, that's how many have heard that kind of concept? Or, or maybe another way that it comes to you a lot is, maybe you can help me, how does it come? But how does that sort of general skepticism, cynicism about this topic of, of ecclesial polity, um, how does that get conveyed? How are some ways that we might see that get conveyed in the life even of the church, but especially outside the church? Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes I've heard people say, "I'm really excited about this church." It's like it's really authentic because they don't because they don't. There's just one, you know. There's just like two people in charge, and everyone else just goes and worships together. Like they like that's like a mark of what makes it authentic to them. Really, the lack of a of a system and an order. Big system, yeah. Wow, yeah. I've heard people talk about the PCA with too much bureaucracy. Yeah. Maybe that's a misunderstanding. Obviously, maybe a misunderstanding of the. Well, and and to be sure, uh, I could probably be one of those persons to some degree, but it's all within the, uh, it's all in context. What do you mean by bureaucracy? If I, if you mean that we have polity, no. Nah. But if you mean that sometimes we have too many committees, maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you hear that? I think yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Sort of the notion that it's sort of secondary and it's important. Good. Um, you know, whereas, well, you don't need to understand that to, to accept Jesus as your Savior. And, and that would be true. And, and, <laughs> and so, therefore, it, you know, it, it's sort of denigrated for, yes, that, for right. that reason and not. That's, that's, where I, that's exactly right. And I hear it a lot even in our denomination. There's a kind of, um, well, when you really kind of grow up and cry, when you really kind of get grown up spiritually, you know those things are sort of the things that small-minded people deal with. People get lost in the trees who don't see the forest. I mean, the, the forest, and let me just put it in terms that maybe you can resonate with. You know, come on, man. There's a mission. There's a lost world. There's a gospel. There's grace and salvation and eternal life. Who would, in their right mind, get caught up in stuff like polity? Don't you hear that? And very subtly, we start. We 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 really don't take time to learn it. Even in, even seminarians don't take much time to learn it. It, it. Most seminaries, if you don't have a specific course like what I teach at Gordon Conwell, you really don't learn much about it. I mean, your your course on uh, your systematic theology will have a, a section on ecclesiology usually, um, and certainly it'll talk about the jo- doctrine of the church, but it won't go into the pattern. Of, of words that pertain to poly. If it does, it'll be more of a historical survey, and that's about it. So it's amazing how secondary this can become. Um, very subtly, we kind of—I I bet you some of you even thought it coming in the room. Like, I mean, I feel it just teaching it and uh, in in coming into a con- God. You know, are they going to think? You know, this is kind of a small-minded thing compared to the big issues of life. It feels like well. Look again. Um, let me let me run. Samuel Miller, who of course wrote the ruling elder, 
he says it this way, it is plain that the word of God is well from uniform experience that the government of the church is a matter of great importance. That the form as well as the administration of that government is more vitally concerned with the peace, purity, and edification of the church than many Christians appear to believe. And of consequence, that it is no small part of fidelity to our master in heaven to hold fast the form of ecclesial order as well as the form of sound words which he has delivered to his saints. Um, you know, I, I can't even begin to exclamate that point enough. Um, How many abuses, how many real serious abusive situations happen because you have churches governing, binding, making judgments, discerning who can come, who's in, who's out. I mean, that's at the very core of our first level of judgment of who's in and who's out, which is to give someone assurance or not. It's the judgment of, of, uh, of how, how, do we, how do we judge our... our, our it, it goes both ways. How does a congregation judge and what is it expecting from its leaders? I mean, I mentioned before, I think it's a horrible crisis that I know our pastorates all over. I work with a lot of people now with that, as you know. And, and I'm telling you, it's a horrible crisis for a pastor to walk into a church. What's his job description? It really, truly becomes what anyone wants it to be. You know, according to what your perception of a pastor is, and you're trying to live into that. And it, that, that's expected. Or what's an elder's job description? We do at least have a little of that in the BOCO. And what are, what are congregants really expecting from them? And what shouldn't they expect from them? Should they expect an elder to be their, their favorite tennis buddy? Is that legitimate? And can you have a, a good relationship with an elder who isn't your best friend? I sure hope so. You only can have a couple of good friends in your life, you know. <laughs> you just can't do it. So, you know, there's there's all kinds of questions that come into that level. There's questions that come into um, uh, policies. And what happens is if we haven't really been disciplined to think, well, how do we make decisions? How do those decisions get made in a manner that is consistent with it being Christ's decision for this church, because that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Um, you can see how how abusive and how and and I mean, really, it, there I could just start citing cases of horrible, horrible church. I would say most blowups in a church at some level will have uh, something to do with this issue, even if they were precipitated by other issues. Usually, they are other issues. They, you don't you don't have a church. Typically, you don't have a church schism on the on the question of the eldership and is it two or is it three office. But you will have a question about I don't know how you know what what should we do with children in communicant membership, let's say. And you will be deliberating that question with a particular form of government that may be more or less suited to finding a biblical answer within a gracious context. See, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so I could go on and on, but I hope that you're getting a sense for why this is important. It just uh, sort of resonates, I think, with the conversation Wednesday about loving your neighbor as yourself, but really yeah. it has to start with the church, even how we give our money mm. and our missional focus mm. really has to be inward before 
um, it can go outward, or the needs yeah. need to be met yeah. inward before they can be Especially met. the household of God clause you're talking right. about. Yeah. Because uh, the world will know us by yeah. our love for one another. Good. So it's really, if we don't have you know, the peace and order and purity and edification within the church and all those other things that are bigger, bolder, and more grand. That's a great point. And are important, won't function well because the organization that's trying to embark into the world is dysfunctional itself. And that's a perfect point. I hope everybody heard it. That that explains why I was emphasizing that word sound or pattern of sound, holistic. You, You know, these, we call five marks, mission, no gospel-centered, confessional, communal, sacramental, which is our worship. It's a web. It's it's it, you, you, any one of those five get uh, um, compromised. It's going to impact the other four. It's going to impact the other four. That's the that's exactly what this verse is trying to articulate. That it's 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 a system. And there's a pattern. But a pattern which requires a pattern meaning that you follow it. Like if you were sewing, I guess it's a pattern. Like here's how you make a dress or whatever you're making. I'm not, I don't even know what I'm talking about, so I've got to stop there. But, but you see, the, it's a pattern. We're supposed to follow it is what that language is trying to articulate. And if we don't, we won't be sound. So that's, that's the connection. A pattern, a standard derived from God. And if we don't follow it, we will not be sound as in healthy. And that's uh, Ruling Elder's point. Um, you, you have this nice quote here um, by uh, someone. If you could just read James Bannerman's quote. Christ is the founder of the Christian church. Okay, Craig, you're dismissed. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Christ is the founder of the Christian church in the sense that he gave it its origin at first, that he impressed upon it its character and arrangement, that he laid down the framework of its government and order, that he appointed to it its laws and office bearers and ordinances, that he invested it, in short, with a particular form, with the peculiar form and the peculiar constitution that distinguish it as a society. He is not only the founder of the Christian church, he's also the ruler and administrator of it, in such a way that he keeps in his own hands to exercise that power to administer that authority, and to dispense that grace. He is the head of the church in this sense, that the church is not only indebted to him for its existence at first, but for its life and well-being ever since. In this sense, that it is not the church that governs and dispenses ordinances and spiritual graces in his name, and by reason of his, his original gift and endowment to her, but Christ, who personally present, governs and administers ordinances and blessings through the church. Such then is the source of the power of the church. So he's making a really important distinction here. What is it? I mean, one view of church power would be versus another. What is he? What is he saying there? Can you see it? It'd be really easy for church for for the the sort of system to become to practically become a little more like deist, like this. Could I had that thought in my head too? That's a great one. Keep going. Oh, just that, that it's, it's no longer a continued relationship. The guys yeah. are set it up and then, it, then the clock keeps ticking. I just love it when I hear someone actually doing theology in their explanation. See what she just did? That was great. Our doctrine of God. Do we think he's a deist? If so, what would that mean for our government? That's a perfect example of a pattern where a system begins to impact. Very subtly, he I mean, you just nailed it, so you just got an A. But he, very subtly, he's calling out deism. 
deism as related to the idea of, of government. The idea that God started the whole thing. He's the founder of the whole thing. But, he's at, but as if he's then just left us to ourselves. And, and to try to say, okay, we're going to now govern ourselves. That is not what we call jura divino. You know that word, hopefully. Presbyterianism or, or ecclesiology. As in a, 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 a form of government by divine law. God prescribed it. And it's crucial to know that, and it's very endearing even as I prayed this morning, because if someone will say, God, that seems heavy-handed, I'm going to say, well, that's weird you would think of it that way, because what I see it is incredibly gracious, that here's a God that did not leave us to ourselves. He, He's still with us. And this gets into the mystery of that presence, and by the Holy Spirit, mediated, remember that language? Not immediate, but mediated through the church of Jesus Christ. And how is that mediated? Through the means or the, the patterns of, of instructions, the architectural design of the church. So that's that's a very important point, and I just want to make sure before we get started that we, we're all on the same page with this, that we are talking about something that is an essential element of the gospel. Even if it's not, um, it's not, that's not the same as saying it's essential for a person to have personal assurance. I didn't say that. So, sure, are we going to require someone who's a, to become a new member to understand what you're learning here today? We're not even going to mention it, are we? Other than just to point out that we believe this, if you ever want to know about it, and this is how we govern ourselves. But at that point in their life, that's probably not what we're going to hammer on. No, this is not a doctrine of assurance. It is a doctrine of peace and purity and experiencing the fullness of Christ in this present life. And that's the gospel too. It'd be like I, this argument that you related to. Um, it's it's almost like someone say, "Well, sanctification is an essential to the gospel." Well, we got to get folks now that you're becoming leaders. You got to get a little more nuanced than that. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. No, it's not. Uh, sanctification isn't a basis for assurance. If you mean by that, we're going to examine my sanctification, and at some point, I'm going to say, "Oh, now I have assurance because I got enough sanctification." And some people, I think, that's the only word they think is is essential. The only thing that they're thinking about is sort of a elemental part of our faith is assurance, whether I'm a Christian or not. And we're going to say no, but sanctification is essential to the purpose of the gospel. Well, so is ecclesiology. So is the church essential to the gospel, as we've seen before. And how we govern ourselves so that people can be discipled and governed, etc. So, so this is very important, and um, I hope you, 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 you know that. Uh, I don't think other denominations would willfully or intentionally say that their lack of quality is deism, but is the lack of, is it? Oh, I think any denomination could say that. I don't think this is a denominational argument at all. Well, I guess what I'm saying, those that... Uh, don't emphasize ecclesiastical or no. I, I I just don't. I don't think I can agree. I think it, you can find as much theologizing in the other camps and it being important as you could this one. So I mean, I think it's it's more a trend that transcend. I'd say what we're describing is a trend that is the sort of democratization trend of modernity, the egalitarian trend of modernity, the individualization trend. I mean, you take individualism, democratization, all that kind of stuff, and you pile it into the gospel, 
and it becomes a populist movement, there you get that disdain. And I think that crosses over every denomination. But no, if you go back in history, even in that paper that I had you read with Torrance, I hope you see there's been quite a lot of work and quite a lot of seriousness being put to this question of what is Christ ordained for us? But so I, I can appreciate the point. But well, let's let's get into this. So basically, I want to just sort of we're going to get deeper and deeper, as, as you know. Um, so what I wanted to do first of all is just say, okay, so is uh, what what can we derive from a, a, a review of redemptive history um, about that pattern? What is the pattern? Now we're moving to the what is the pattern, not just is it good to have a pattern. And here you see the ruling elders biblically argued a a historical uh, context. And what we're going to argue at the very heart is there's never been a time, you've heard this before, there's never been a time when God was not present, I should say, um, I missed the knot, put that knot in there so nobody present, to mediate his rule vis-a-vis elders. Now notice I put elders in quotation marks because uh, the word is in the Bible. It's a word that was defi- that, that we have a trajectory from old all the way through the New Testament. But therein begins the debate. Well, well uh, is that who? It, what is an elder? Um, is an elder uh, the the Scottish presbyter, which would have been a pastor? Yeah. Is the elder a lay? representative of the congregation? Maybe. Is an elder the same as the deacon? No. Yes. Maybe. And that's pretty much how this argument's going to go today. Um, uh, that, that, you know, there, it's, but I want, before we get into that argument, I want to make sure that we don't lose the forest for the trees. Um, that there was really never a time in all redemptive history where God did not take the did not by divine law prescribe a means through which He was present, governing His His flock. Um, and uh, so this is a very brief sort of um, thing. Of course, you take it. You begin in the patriarchal period, household organization, sometimes called tribes, where in the Old Testament was represented by their elders or heads of households, keeping in mind that household tribes were little communities consisting of perhaps hundreds of, um, of nuclear family households, sometimes thousands if you think about Abraham. You know, a, a household was a nation of thousands and thousands, or more than that, you know. And, um, and they were delegated assemblies who represented multiple smaller assemblies. Uh, we begin to see that, for instance, in Exodus 3. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, Boom, 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 boom. He's putting out a law. And see what's going on there? Already in Exodus 3, out of the patriarchal period, we have this idea of certain numbers being set apart from the congregation called by God in a governing manner. Very simple. The Mosaic era, I give you some scriptures there, Levitical priesthood, and you see what looks like the emergence of a, of a, a two-office kind of a system. Um, 
Exodus 20, 24, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nabab and Abahu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. I mean, these are little phrases that I'm just pointing you to. We're not going to get into all the Old Testament stuff yet. I'm going to allude to that later, as you'll see. But we, what, I'm, what you're seeing now is just a very simple thesis, which is elders have always been here. This is not a new idea. Um, Deuteronomy is a great passage. Someone read that one. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. One of the stronger traditions within church polity, um, the one that I still wrestle with myself, um, could and it could be within what I'm later going to describe as a two or three office view. You could have it either way, depending on which way you do it. Is the tradition which all of the three, all of the traditions I'm going to present to you today within our broader reform context has a concept of elders. That, that includes almost every reform tradition I can think of. And, you know, um, the question is, um, and, and all the traditions have, or most of the, what I call, the, well, not all, they're just, they're, they're all over the wall, brethren who don't have anything. I mean, so when I say all the traditions, I just mean within the, one I want, the ones I'm going to present to you. Um, more or less, we'll understand that there is a, uh, a priest-pastor, Old New Testament, concept within the eldership. Here, you think of Moses and the Levitical priesthood. You know, Moses, there's a pattern here in the Old Testament you're going to remember in the New Testament, right? Moses, a Christ figure, once and for all, apostolic, if you will, someone authorized in a revelatory manner to set forth the pattern of sound words that then the those who succeed, succeed, not, not succeed, you know, those who continue after him, the continuation of that ministry, but in a non-revelatory manner, were the Levites. All right? The, the, the Levites. Notice the Levites were not chosen from among the tribes. They were not representatives of the people. They were the representatives of God with a very special process of recognizing them in the Old Testament through a special family, etc. And the Levites, ministry of word and sacrament, you could describe it. In this passage, it, it's, it's the way I want you to see this because you're going to see it later. And you brought, if you've read Torrance, you saw that merging. Is one of the key passages that will be utilized as well, I think, in the New, New Testament. And some would describe then that lay 
that head of household group, that, that why the, choose from yourselves wise men, uh, some will point to passages in the New Testament, like Romans and Corinthians, and I quoted them for you later, that will illustrate that, that those are the, uh, what's the language? Um, basically, they're elder assistants. They're elder assistants. Those who are to assist. And you see that language here. You see it in Acts 6. Um, you're going to see that there's a there's a narrative that, that's been imposed on Mass Acts 6 where we think of them as deacons and deacons as those who manage the alms and mercy. Whereas you now are going to be exposed today to another, I think, stronger tradition. The majority tradition that includes Calvin and Westminster, etc., where it was, whoa, 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 no, no. Whether they're deacons in the First Timothy 3 sense or not, what we see is in Acts the appointment of servant elders. But elders in this vein who are to accompany and assist, especially in taking the burden of ruling off of the Levites or Apostolic pastors, and so so what? Notice that very carefully there. Um, how and and then so that's point number one. I want you to see in Deuteronomy nine, I mean, uh, uh, Deuteronomy one. Point number one is notice. Just notice that you have a two office thing going on here. You have Moses who was succeeded, succeeded by the Levites in a continual fashion. Where there is a God human word focus, and listen to that. God human word focus. And then you have from among the people those who were to assist Moses and the Levites in the governing of the community in order that they would not get distracted from the ministry of word and sacrament. So you have them, and notice they are then chosen from among themselves. There's your representative, representative principle. And they're chosen from among themselves, albeit appointed and recognized. Notice that word appoint, that's the word ordain. Appointed from the existing eldership, including Moses and the Levites. They were appointed. So that's the first point I want you to see. This sort of two office, non-representative, representative coming together, word and sacrament, government coming together kind of a concept, and now you have the humored Godward element. From human upward to God, bringing the interest of the humanity to God vis-a-vis the mediator uh, Moses, if you will, in this case, the type of Christ. Um, that's your first point, all that, one point. That I just want you to kind of make sure you see that there. The second point, which I think is a really is going to get into your second thing today, which we'll be covering with Witherow, do you notice uh, verse, um, uh, let's see here, um, this is 15. Do you see, what, what's the, what, anybody, everybody know what the word presbyteros means? Presbyter in English, if you will, means? That's the Greek word for elder. Okay? So what do you think presbytery means? An assembly of, huh? A group of elders. Yeah, a group of elders. An assembly of elders. So this is really simple. I'm really making this really simple here. We're, we're breaking it down. 
We have now the establishment that there are elders already in Deuteronomy and before. We have already distinguished that there's this non-representative word and sacrament focused elder and there's this representative ruling governing focused elder that is representative. In Exodus. In Exodus as well as in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it actually starts in 18 as well. Uh, you have Jethro who gives this, remember, uh, and you'll get to that later. Um, and then, and now, I want you to see the, the word, though you don't see the word, presbytery. Do you see what he does? And you answered me in 15, so he took the heads of the tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you. And notice, there are many presbyteries. Commander of thousands, commander of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribe. Notice that word officers. Yeah. The word head, commander, and officer, is there any distinction? Um, I think they're saying the same thing. Okay. No. So I, no. I think they're they're um, they're speak they, they speak to the same thing in a little different way, of course. You know, the head uh, principle of sort of you know, on the top. Of authority, um, but no. But the key word here is presbytery. Why am I going to say this? Because there's a real mistake going on. I'm going to talk about it later. But there's a huge mistake going on out of ignorance in our own denomination that us, that thinks the word presbytery means this specific, historically specific, if you even will, thing that we call the middle court between sessions and general assembly. Yes, that is a presbytery. So in our polity right now in America, in the PCA, we have sessions, presbytery, general assembly. Can anybody figure out what I'm saying? What's wrong with that? And why is that so dangerous? What's wrong with it is because session is a presbytery. And the Bible does not prescribe the number of presbyteries that are useful in the life of a, of a community. Here, you have how many presbyteries? Elders who then assemble together and govern, i.e. presbytery. How many do you see there? There's, there's, over, there's one over thousands, there's one over uh, hundreds, there's one over fifties, there's one over tens. Um, and this is really important because, um, and, I, and it's to this congregation and many like ours, what's already beginning to happen here, and if you read Torrance, and I really hope you read it, he gave you the history of this, in the early church, they actually utilized the Sanhedrin model of presbytery, and they had a specific number, 120. And when you got to the 120, you would now form another presbytery. Another session, if you will, another whatever you want to call it, presbytery. Um, but what you see is a really important principle here that you're going to find in the New Testament as well in a minute. And what is it? There's a kind of um, global, local movement here. We, we, we want to be unified across the thousands. Thus you have a a, a presbytery over the thousands, but those thousands have been broken into hundreds, fifties, 
You know, why? Because there's also a principle that the more local you get, the more authentic are the five marks, if I could just use that language since you're familiar with it, if, or however you want to call it, the marks of the church, if you will. The five marks become increasingly authentic in the sense of their being personally experienced and, and worked out to the degree that you get more local. But to the degree you get more local, so the, 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 the word, the, the, the become flesh and templed among them language of, of John gets biased towards localism. Okay, do you hear this? Uh, you, know, you can't imagine how important this stuff is in, in a context like what we're doing here. So the temple trajectory, if you will, of becoming flesh and dwelling within us, incarnational principle, some people call it, which I don't like to use it, but I, if you want to use that, that's fine. Incarnational principle of ministry, bias is more local, more small. All right, we, we intuitively know that because we have small groups here. Why? And people sometimes, I'll hear you guys say to people, oh, it's, it's the way that, it's like a little mini church. Well, you're saying exactly what Deuteronomy is saying here. And this little mini church can do the one anothering and do some of the means of grace in a manner that, but what is lost in that mini church? The word. The more local you get, and particularized and vernacularized and sociocultural fleshized, I know I make up words every time I speak, the less global, universalized, you know, those things which are elemental, if you will, get lost in the things which are forms of the elements. And there is an incredible tension here that I want you to see. And you're, I'm pointing it out now because it's just so clearly stated, but it's, it, this is a tension you will find over and over and over again in redemptive history. A tension of, one, recognizing, my first point from this was what? There's never been a time in all redemptive history where there weren't elders. And you see a met pattern pretty early on where elders consisted of two parts. The, and again, it's debated heavily whether what's going on, but, but you have basically ministry of word and sacrament, Levitical elders, and you have ministry of rule and government from representative rule. The, the, the Levitical, again, I've said it, they're non-representatives. They don't come as representing anybody in the congregation. They come from God, so to speak, through a process to the people, and then the elders who come from the people to God. And you got that, right? And you see them being organized in presbyteries, which is, means assembly of elders. I know I'm being repetitive, but I'm just trying to, trying to make sure you're getting this stuff. And what you see is a principle of maintaining global all the way down to almost amazingly small units here of local. Globally local. Now, just, just to give you a heads up of where this might go for us here. When I'm communicating with my denomination, what we're doing here in trying to create a multi-congregational church in New Haven, I'm learning not to use the word multi-congregational because there is a, a, a bad way of thinking of that, which ironically is the worst sort of globalism. To me, the worst sort of globalism is when you are imposing... One, you know, it's it's like hierarchicalism with with a you know gone amok in what I call the multi-site movement. The multi-site movement is where this one single pastor head 
literally video imports his image, his his flesh, his his culture, his socioeconomic package that comes with him into satellite campuses all over the country or world, maybe. To me, that's 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 more hierarchical than even Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic. At least the Roman Catholics give me a local priest who can somehow mediate all this otherwise prescribed stuff from Rome, which is still too hierarchical for me and us. That's why we don't do that in Presbyterianism. But what I'm saying is, but when I, but when I say multi-congregational, to here to you, you know what I mean. Now we're planning a presbytery. That's all we're doing. We're doing presbytery, but I don't know how to say that in the domination. Because presbytery, nine, I mean, I'm talking 99% of ordained pastors is the middle court between session and, and GA. But that's why we need to go back and get the theology of presbytery before we start talking about presbytery. Presbytery is simply an assembly of elders. And the principle here that we already see being worked on in early redemptive history is maintaining a global, local balance, if you will, with respect to the how this means of grace that we call rule of elders is manifest in the lives of people so that it becomes increasingly life on life as you get to more and more localized presbyteries. It becomes increasingly, you know... uh, Universal uh, aspects of unity across many sectors of, 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 I'd say, increasingly ecumenical is a word I could use, in the good sense of that word, as you get more global. So why are we doing a multi... And, and, and what, what, does a, uh, what does a presbytery have to look like? Well, I don't want our presbytery, when we what we're calling our multi-congregational movement, we don't want our multi-congregational movement here to look like a middle-level presbytery. Why? Because you're defying the whole purpose of doing it. If all we're going to do is reproduce what happens at the right now in our that middle-level presbytery, we certainly have more life on life than I do at General Assembly. We certainly have a little more vernacularization going on, a little more peculiar, you know, particularities going on that's suited to Southern New England, you know, uh, the distinctives here. So there's a little more flesh in our presbytery than global and but in the General Assembly, but there's a lot less flesh than there is in this local church called CPC. The fact is, you see your elders here a lot more than you see your elders in presbytery, right? <laughs> Duh. In fact, I don't even think you know one of them. You will get to meet him in a couple of weeks when we host the Presbytery. But you see the point. Y'all follow what, this, what the impact of this is? So as you get more local, you're going to get more close and to an organic union of the five marks. By organic union, I mean where the five marks come under an organization that's common to everyone that's participating in that organization. So, for instance, our city Presbytery that we're calling multi-congregational because we don't have room for it in our denomination right now. We don't have that category for another level president. Um, is going to share budget. It's going to it's going to have one session over the city with subsessions or commissions over each congregation. So what we're going to do is we're going to insert another level presbytery between presbytery and session. Every congregation though, but what I don't want you to see here. God, this is important. You can't imagine how important this is. I know Craig and, and, and uh, 
uh, Kevin are going to hear this. I was, I was getting you in the air. I just said, you don't, you don't let me think a little bit. Um, you know, you got a hundred things in your mind. It takes a little time to get out of one. But the point is, is, uh, is what was I saying? See, Daniel, you know they know why this is important. They know, they know. But what I want you to hear here is, is so, so what, what's important is, is that at every level of presbytery, we need to make sure that the five marks are present. And therefore, we would not be for those kind of multi-site movements where a local church like the Hill did not have its own session. We would not want to be that kind of church where the local church doesn't have a pastor. It could get to ten here and you still have a pastor in a session. But the point is, is that, that what you're going to do is you're going to... But on the other hand, now here's, here's the catch... The reason I said this is this is an ecumenical uh, method, and this is this is a real major part of my doctoral thesis. The reason this is such a, an important ecumenical method is that our method for ecumenism, and why is that important, by the way, ecumenism? Because Jesus Christ gave the world the right to judge us as being authentic or not by our love and unity one for another. And right now, because we don't have systems like this in place. Generally, if you determine a session or an elder board by a geography or a particular local church, which typically is a geography, you're going to have class, you're going to have race, you're going to have uh, social, cultural, economic, you know, identities that, that just naturally are the flesh of a given congregation that never have to submit one to another across that social, economic, cultural divide. Except at these very extreme levels of presbytery and general assembly where we really don't, it's all voluntary in terms of money, in terms of all this other stuff. So what we're trying to do, and when people say to me, God, Pastor, you know, I wish we could have more, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think we rightly, a lot of us have a heart that knows that something's wrong when Christians of different class, Christians of different race, Christians of different social cultural identities, whatever they are, um, are not somehow organically, you know the meaning of that word, right? That means they're under one organization, not just voluntary cooperatives. Where they're organically in submission one to another with respect to what they believe, confessionalism, with respect to how they worship, sacramentalism, with respect to how they govern themselves, communalism, with respect to their mission, and with respect to their gospel-centered spirituality. So what you see developing here is exactly what you see happening in Deuteronomy. If anybody says to you, what's this multi-congregational thing? Just turn to Deuteronomy 1. So there it is. That's what we're doing. Or, and you can turn them to Acts and elsewhere because it happens there again. That's what we're doing. And we're doing it in a denomination that sadly has lost the, the meaning of Presbytery. Presbytery is not a middle court. Presbytery is an assembly of elders appointed over an increasingly or decreasingly, which way your arrow is going, global or to local level congregation with all the means of grace present within them. So that's basically all we're doing. 
and um, maybe one day before I die, we'll, we'll get the denomination to re- revisit the issue. We used to have, by the way, in the 19th century, we used to have what's called a synod. A synod is just a, a more a court name for a presbytery. And um, if it wasn't until after around right at the turn of the century, 20th century, that in the, in the formation of the PCA even, that we got rid of the, uh, the, the synod. Why? It, because if you, were, if you had been living literally in New Haven, um, there would have been a presbytery of New Haven, there would have been a synod of Connecticut or, or more, and there would have been a general assembly of America. You see, and that's. The, but my point is, none of that is biblically prescribed. In other words, how many presbyteries should a movement have? And that's not a prescription in Scripture. What is a prescription is that we have presbyteries. That is, that we're governed by an assembly of elders, elders who consist of these at least two classes. Now, the question that you're going to get in later is: Are they classes? Are they offices? Why does that make a difference? And you'll see. Any questions here? This was a lot, but I just went ahead and pegged this one, and I'm not going to do this with all these other passages. Yes? Um, I don't know if it's appropriate, so you can pass on this, but, I'm, but it seems like from these um, the sort of priest, pastor, Levite, versus the sort of the people, elders, like, so practically now for us, I know that like elders are members of this church, but you're a member of the presbytery, right? Yeah. So is would is uh in any of these levels is everybody like a member of are the is the priest pastor Levite thing always a member of the next thing up and the chosen yeah. people are sort of Well let, let me explain that. That's a great question. Um, and it does illustrate this point pretty well. Um, we're all members of one church. So am I a member of this church? Yes. If you mean the Church of Jesus Christ, the Presbyterian Church in America. Already got a, a nerve on me when I called it of America, but that's another point. Um, uh, the uh, you know Southern New England Presbytery. The, you see, what, all of, there's an organic union that exists between all of these levels of uh, presbyteries. And so you'll see later in our polity that the that there's a concept in Presbyterianism because of the organic unity that that the ruling of one court has a, 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 a is is the ruling for the whole church with respect to that court. Yeah. Okay. Now it doesn't mean, but what? So when you say I'm a member, what it really what you really want to say, which is the way we say it, so you said it right. But if you want to get really more technical, I'm under the jurisdiction in terms of my being under discipline, I'm under the jurisdiction of the presbytery. They're the ones who hold my credentials, which means if I were to be defrocked, the session can't do it. If I were to be appointed to this church as your pastor, the session doesn't do it. The presbytery appoints me to this church. The congregation, the session, the, the presbytery uses the congregation and its vote, etc. We do do that which is a big debated thing back when as well, this is where the Anglicans come to us and say, where did you get that exactly, that pastors are, appointed, are, are voted by their congregations? And they will have a pretty good argument about the appointment process based on that. Uh, that again, seeing pastors more akin to Levitical priesthood succession. 
you know, going through the Sanhedrin the way they did through the scribes and, and etc. But, um, uh, but you know, those are debates, and that's fine. Um, I don't have a problem with our system, by the way. Um, I see it as as counsel. The the the, the, the presbytery is is. I mean, if I'm going to make a decision, I'm going to want to poll, if you will, the people. I'm going to want to know the people. I'm going to want to understand the people, and and in that regard. So I think it's a good process. I'm not opposed to that at all, actually. And I would suggest that a good Anglican bishop would use the same process of considering the interest of the local congregation, getting their input, etc. So. You're going to see there's a lot more overlap, by the way, between some of these, between Reforms, Presbyterians, Anglicans. There's a lot more overlap than you think, even with the hierarchical people, um, even though there is a point of juncture there. So uh, so to answer your question, yeah, I'm, I'm under the, my, my vocational credentials are under the, the, the Presbytery, which means I serve here at their uh which helps God, human word versus That's right. human word, God word. Well, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, it, yeah. I, I'm in a place where I can talk about more, but as a young pastor, I couldn't have because it would have sounded very opportunistic. But, but now, I mean, and I say it for my, the sake of our young pastors and others out in our denomination, that, that you need a lot of protection as a pastor. You know, you really do. There's, there's, it's a real hard thing to walk into a situation and not have a job description that's authorized. Um, be, I mean, and, and we don't have one from our book of church order it, because, again, what we've done is in our we're a two and a half office view, which really means a one and a half view of of, of uh, elder, and um, therefore the job description of an elder generally is the job description of a pastor. So that's good. I guess I have that, but but that's not what you expect of me to be like Rick. Um, well, you might want me to be more like Rick, and I wouldn't blame you, but. But uh, but uh, but as an elder, ruling elder, you know, you have a lot more uh, different kinds of expectations typically for your pastor than that. And yet, what I what I'm going to just be humble about and say, but honestly, is that that to me is a huge error of what I call the two and a half system. Is by it's a logical extension of that that you therefore wouldn't have a distinct job description if it's not a distinct office. It's just a class within the same office. So you just kind of emphasize more words the way you're going to see it later. Yeah. Because it's sort of related to this, and you mentioned the of America uh, or in America. Uh, do you want to talk about um, the PCA's relation to other Presbyterian churches, either in our country or the world, and or the relationship with other denominations and how that's part of the church? Do you want to talk about it? You're, you're welcome to. <laughs> but, but I think it just makes sense. That you talk. You talk about authority. Sure. Well, go ahead. You talk about authority and um, jurisdiction and. There is a sense in which it really ends for us in the bounds of our denomination. Although we have fraternal relationships with others, yeah. there is no jurisdiction beyond our denomination. Although I do think it, a lot of that is sad. I mean, a lot of that I think we can have very good relations with not just other Presbyterian Reform denominations in our own country, but um, mm-hmm. but globally. And it, it does kind of get weird when we have these. M&A projects places and presbyteries form and what, you know, yeah. Are they part of the PCA? I don't know. Well, it, it is a big issue, and yes, um, yeah, it is sad. We ought to be working towards unity. But I mean, Organic you unity. Think about it, conceptually, mm-hmm. beyond the PCA, there's not jurisdictional yeah. authority or, yeah. or a right. relation that organically right. that, that connects us beyond 
just in general, we know that we're part of the Church yeah. of Jesus Christ. That's beyond. Yep. Yep. What do we call those global presbyteries? Well, there is no. Glo- that's the point. Um, our, our global presbytery is General Assembly. It, we're just. His point is that our General Assembly has a jurisdiction over a denomination that, even in its title, describes itself as in America. <laughs> so it's not very global sounding to me, and to you probably. And so that's part of the issue. And that's a lot of us talk. I mean, this isn't. I'm not. This isn't a unique thing for me to say this or him. I mean, I'd say most of the denomination has that sort of, that, that stinks. But how, So this is where you get into some more of the, the reality stuff. Um, when you have resources, money, institutions, committees, people's jobs, uh, are you willing to take, I mean, the PCA and the OPC is a great example. Um, you know, you could argue that we are so similar, it's hardly distinguishable if you're looking at our book of church order and our confession of faith. But if you look at our understanding of missions, understanding of ecumenism, understanding of what constitutes an element of spirituality versus a form of spirituality, there's some pretty significant distance between us. And so when it gets to the issues of spirituality... Um, and you have a, a method of church planting, let's say, that's been highly successful um, because of a real uh, kind of, um, uh, how do I say it, uh, the way in which we plant churches and what we do to do it um, is very different, let's say, than the OPC church. Um, what we count as important uh, to determine who is a church planner, what we, how we raise the money, and what's where is the burden for that raising? Is it a centralized fund, funding approach, or is it a decentralized funding approach? You get into some of those things, and we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars with lots of people and staff. That's what's stopping it. Now, you could argue in your idealism, in my idealism. That's bull. <laughs> you know, you could say that. But it's not so simple because um, there's a real spirituality that probably needs to be codified confessionally that distinguishes us. And then we would have to start working on that spirituality together and really saying, okay, let's go to the script. Are we both willing to be humble and go to the scripture? And guys, this is why, I mean, you could you could call the course that you're taking, the, the, that's going beyond this, but you could call the last three sessions that we've had together Ecumenism 101. Because everything we're talking about would be the kind of things you'd have to talk about. How do we define a thought power? What's, what's the difference between, you know, what can we, could we, could we, Distinguish between what's required for us to subscribe to it versus what's required for us just to concede that it can be. And the big problem between ecumenism is that question between elements and forms, between several and joint exercise of authority, and where and when you do it. So I, this is a you just kind of got me in a back door of why what we're talking about is so important again. You know, what divides us, in my, my understanding now, what divide, in some ways you could say, what divides us in the OPC denomination is a very different view in very significant ways between elements and forms and how that's applied to unity. 
and what, who, and or between joint and several, and how that's exercised in the life of a congregation or in a denomination, and some other things like the word missional um, and what missional requires. Um, so there's a big issue there. Uh, like I said, vastly different way of doing missions, and, and and you know you could argue for I could argue for the pros and cons of both actually. And see, I would I personally would be happy to unite with the OPC if we could come to the table on these issues of the nature and extent and limits of church power and how that would be utilized in the life of a local church. So would this church be allowed to express itself in terms of of various spiritualities alongside of another church who expresses itself in very different ways of dealing with those spiritualities? If, If I would say hopefully so. I mean, as I've made a case, for instance, and I've I've gone public with this, though I have a a position on women ordination that's that's relatively consistent with the BCA, I don't see that as an an issue that would prevent me, in this denomination, joining with other conservative evangelical denominations. And I emphasize conservative evangelical denominations. But if you say the issue of marriage... And gender, now I'm, I'm, you're getting to a very deeply redemptive category here. And I would not be able to join with a denomination. I'm just talking to me personally as an illustration. I would not be able to say, that's just me personally. I'm not speaking to the session right now. Maybe the session disagrees on everything I just said, and that's fine. Um, the point I'm making is, is that, uh, or any individual in the session, I'm just trying to show you how it works out to where when you talk about unity, we're going to have an issue, uh, a discussion on subscription later on. But when we do talk about it, it, you're talking about what are the grounds for unity? What do we have to believe together in order to be one organization? But there is, so I, I'm trying to say to you training leaders, be gentle in your judgments against us, your denomination, or, or others when you start talking about unity, when I hear people typically talking about unity and ecumenism in a lay way, um, I usually, if you've noticed, just bow out because it it, it tends to be such a, a idealistic and naive conversation that I don't even dare get into it. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, there's a good reason why the PCA and the OPC are not joined together, even if it's one that I feel we should work at overcoming. And I think. What you're highlighting is um, the, the thing that keeps it separate is power. And, and it's the fact yeah, that that's right. if it's united, then you leave some congregations who are being faithful or trying to be faithful vulnerable to being put up on charges. Like exactly. Them. And others who we would consider maybe uh, errant and dangerously errant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would feel an obligation to bring them up on charges or have some investigation. And so in order to still say they're a church of Jesus Christ in many ways, and, you know, I, I do think we need to do more work on it. And this is, this is a, yeah, and this is a big decision that the guys I'm working with that are going through ordination process are looking at, for instance. I mean, again, if you're a lay elder um, representing the congregation, and by lay being this isn't your vocation, <laughs> Uh, the stakes are very low. It's just your, it's just your conscience now. 
But what do you do, you know, if you're a pastor and you're going into a denomination um, and you want your, you've only got 30 or so years of ministry for God's sake, do you really want to spend it going to court? Do you really want to sit there and be watching over your shadow, your, 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 your shoulder everything you say and do? Um, because you're worried that if I go into the scriptures and evaluate it honestly, that and have it, and is there space for me to be able to do that so that I can be the kind of pastor that anybody would want, which is a guy that really treats the word seriously and just doesn't read the Westminster Confession as his rule of faith, you know, and to do that meaning to ask the nuanced questions and to go into the exegetical work that it requires to do it. That's why this conversation that we've been having the last two weeks is so important. Because a denomination that doesn't work this out, and I'm saying I think our denomination has, relatively speaking, worked it out pretty well, among other good denominations. But but if you haven't worked this stuff out, or if you don't start helping your local congregations like I'm doing with you right now, and our local sessions work this stuff out, we're going to lose a lot. We're already losing a lot of good men who are just going to go to a congregate to a denomination that says. Whew, you know, I don't like some of the stuff that they're doing. You know, I think they're a little too loose over here. I think they're a little too loose over there. But at least I can go into a local church. I can do a ministry that's just as, just the exact same ministry I would do if I were, say, in the PCA or something else. And I'm not going to be brought up for charges all the time. Because there's a tolerance level that's more in accord with what I believe, I'm speaking for this young man, is a biblical proportion of elements to forms joint to several. See, that's what they're talking about. Now, now I'm helping these young men do this. When I, I literally sit down and say, what denomination? I say, I don't know. You know, that's between you. But, but what you want to ask is some of these major questions, you know, and see where you feel, you know, you can go. And I was talking to someone recently, and, um, you know, just talking about how important it is that when you look for a church, you really talk to that session and interview them and make sure you, you talk about, you know, how does this session, how, how, how conversant is this session with our book of church order? And how conversant are they with the, the, the concepts there in a manner that you can be assured because you've only got one. I mean, you see the sense of that. I mean, I can't, Craig can't play with this, you know, um, and, and Kevin, because, you know, we're talking to, We've got a family to support. We've got a one life to give. It's my job. It's all I can do. And, you know, I don't want to be at the age of 45 screwed, <laughs> you know. And so that's why I'm helping these guys navigate this. Um, and it's really important. So, I mean, this has just been a phenomenal conversation here. Thank you guys for Janine and I, I, Kevin. I just, just yeah. I've seen people, I've had friends who've gone into denominations because they didn't want to deal with yeah. some of this stuff because they felt like they, they got a little bit broader view on some issues yeah. and then they said oh I didn't realize what it would mean to go into that denomination and mm-hmm. then now they're fighting battles about yeah I've seen it go both ways yeah, that's right yeah, yeah but I'm just saying yeah. that's, that's some of the context well let's move on real quickly um, yeah. so this uh, Deuteronomy to me that was a springboard I, I just did the whole biblical yeah. story but yeah go ahead visually in my mind it, it almost looks more like a breakdown of an order chart and so I, I see the elder, obviously, I see the presbyteros, but it doesn't tie the session, it doesn't tie where elders come together in a ruling, it really seems Well, like- doesn't right there, but yeah, they're obviously, if you have, if you have, 
Sessions, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but you'll see it. It's like Acts 15 is an example of it. So the New Testament. Oh, you'll see it in the Old Testament too. I just can't, you know, it's there. But yeah, it's there. That's they, The Sanhedrin came off of the principle of it in the Old Testament. Um, uh, Sanhedrin is a kind of post-Old Testament, pre-New Testament event that informed a lot of how the New Testament set up itself. But it's patterned after the Old Testament system. So you had various levels of presbyteries and um, that would, would convene, etc. But you can see it here. It's not like... I mean, I think it's implicit even here. I mean, certainly if you're of the tribe, the presbytery, if you want to use that word now, of Abraham, um, while he's setting up all these different levels in the organization, if you will, of elders and heads of households, etc., you still belong to Abraham's tribe. There's still something that, that, that unifies them together in terms of their theology, their polity, etc. So you, you, it's even implicit, I think. Totally agree. And, yeah. and listen, Mar- everybody belongs to the maritime organization in my in my PL, right? But my direct reports don't necessarily get together to make decisions about their individual Of course. And they don't do that here. A, yeah. It's more of a hierarchical uh, eldership. Well, yeah, I assume that. A ruling eldership. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. I wish you hadn't said that. They're all ruling. They're ruling, but they don't seem to be ruling in session. Well, they are ruling in session, so I can't agree with that. They're all in session. They're all jointly ruling in Presbyterianism and in this. Um, I just try to take your corporate experience out of it. I think it's going to mess us up. What I'm saying is there's an appellate system here. So that's what's different. So the better model would be what we see in America, which, by the way, came right out of hand over Presbyterian Presbyterianism. So this idea of an appellate court system, that is Presbyterianism right there. So you have local courts doing their thing, but it's under the review and control of higher courts, which is under the rule of review and control of higher courts. So you see they are organically one, even if there's a jurisdiction, original jurisdiction, which means where does, where does the business start and where does it get concluded unless it's reviewed. So what you'll see, we're getting way higher up in our echelons here than we need to be, but, that would, but you asked the question. So what that would mean, for instance, is our presbytery reviews our session minutes every year, supposedly, and, um, and if they see a flag, they go, oh, that seems to be outside of our polity, they will, you know, they will connect with us, and they'll say, "Hold it! What did you do this for? Explain yourself. Give us a defense for why this is biblical. If not, we're going to rule it out of order, or we're going to rule it in some manner negatively." But it's an appellate system, so either it's by review and control, which means they, the press street doesn't come down here and start business with us. That's original, what we call original jurisdiction. The press street reviews and control the business that we conclude here locally. The red flag can get their attention into our lives or you can disagree with your session and say I don't agree with that ruling and I want to appeal it up the chain of command if you will and that's the appellate system Yeah. is there anything that the appellate body could not overturn here is there some local decision here yeah well well, hypothetically yeah I mean you have to they could not overturn anything that's, that's beyond our confessional consensus so they have to prove that what we did was violate Westminster Confession of Faith, which is, and remember, why would they say that and not Scripture? They do say Scripture. But whose interpretation of Scripture? Well, we have all subscribed to an interpretation of Scripture called the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if we do something that's just beside the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
they can't necessarily come in here and say that's wrong unless there was a process for discerning if that's actually a creed. What would be an example? I can't think. Um, well, any most of the, what we do would be an example is outside. You know, when do we worship? How long do we worship? How many churches do we plant? Um, is that question that, that Jeff mentioned earlier of uh, using drama and worship, they're trying to decide whether that's side or... Yeah, um, that, that's that's an open debate. There are some things which the church says, you know, at a higher level, we haven't resolved this yet, like creation. We came out with a recreation report. We all received it. There was like six views. What they said is, look, what, what are the non-negotiables? Whatever view of creation you have, you got to have these in it. <laughs> you know, fiat creation, stuff like that. But then young earth, old earth, da, 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 da. there was a whole range of things. And they just said, you know what? We are not prepared to, to subscribe, to make that a subscription issue. So what you're asking is what, it's really just they can hold us accountable to anything that is a subscription issue. That we have all taken vows as of, of subscribing to this is our constitutional interpretation of the scripture. That helps. So, yeah, there could be uh, gobs. Most of what we do, you know, you could say um, teachings beside. You know, there, there's a lot of things you can teach and do um, that are contrary to, but are just beside the subscription document. And it's because, and thankfully so, because the the intent. Remember, what is a creed? It's an ecumenical document. Don't ever forget that. That's what a creed is. It's what are the things we need to subscribe to in order to be one. So there are a lot of things we believe that we're going to say, but I don't think we need to subscribe to that as a creed as a basis for unity. So the appellate reviewer could decide that something is maybe not wise, but that's not that's, right. that's not within his. That's right. Purview. Now I hope everybody thinks yes. that clearly. But yes. So if we had a parenting seminar one weekend, yeah. that, it seems like that would fall more original jurisdiction. It's not going to be charged with anything. But then if we're within that seminar, maybe talking about uh, if same-sex marriage is okay, then that's actually going to start violating yeah. confession. Right. So yeah. Well, there's same-sex marriage as the church's view, and then there's the state view, which, are, which can be very different. Right. Well, that's a whole you different could, issue. Yeah, you could, be, you could espouse different views on gay, on the right to gay marriage right. within the congregation that don't implicate the church teaching. Well, it depends what you mean, but yeah, yeah. I mean, no, yeah. I think I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I'm not going to go there too fast. Um, but the point is, is that, that we need to move on. We got to move on. This is good. Um, I'm not going to go through the rest of these scriptures. I just want to, if you if you want to go through them, you can. I'm going to allude to them in a minute. So, uh, but they're there. Um, clearly, you, when you get down to the New Testament, though, just notice uh, you're getting into some of those issues. I really, what time? I can't see the clock. Ten o'clock. We started at eight thirty, nine thirty, ten. So we really need to move here. Um, well, y'all probably need a break. I'm going to go thirty more minutes on this, and then so go take a break. Let me make sure that you don't walk away here thinking that Presbyterianism is a hierarchical system. It's not. And as we've been talking about, Anglicanism, say, is, or Methodism, is. These are three forms of government that are very distinct. So that organization chart could really be misleading is what I'm trying to say, and that's why I tried to get it off of it. Again, I gave you the analogy of the, uh, the appellate court system of America. 
And it really works well. And another word, of course, when I was talking to Chris about it, just you know, I can tell you weren't quite getting it. Um, but it's it's federalism. I mean, that's what it is. It's federalism. And um, the very concept of federalism is that it's not like there is a general or a general assembly somewhere that has any jurisdiction in this church right now. They're, they're, you know, we don't have a boss. <laughs> you know, general assembly is not our boss. Neither is. The, the 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 thing it's a it's a, a court system where as one organ so remember what we believe as Presbyterians this is all back to two sessions ago we believe in this concept of a multi-form congregational system organically united all on the same level all with direct access to our epicenter which is not in Atlanta, which is not in Canterbury, which is not in Rome, which is not in Constantinople, but is in heaven. Heaven, Jesus Christ is our boss. And he's equally the boss of every congregation directly. And so here you have in this picture of yours, it's not a quite what, I mean, there is an appellate system that might look like a flowchart organizationally, but it's not theologically, and it doesn't function that way. Um, so that, for instance, his point that he was asking, and I was glad he did, our presbytery, and we're getting into actually the level where, where we're getting into, I don't know if we'll get into this stuff with this or not, but, but our presbytery has no jurisdiction in this church. It can't come in here and tell us anything, ex- except just like a federal court has no jurisdiction in the state. It can't, a federal court can't come down into a state and do things. And you're going like that. Well, of course, you say, well, they handle state issues sometimes, yeah, but not until it becomes federal. And how does it become federal? Through an appellate system or through a review and control. Hey, this state just acted in a manner that violated our federal constitution, of which you're a member of that federal constitution. We in the state can appeal. Exactly. We, we can appeal. There's two methods. I keep saying appellate, review and control. And, and those two methods make it a federal a, 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 a higher court issue when you have its view violated a constitution, our Westminster Confession of Faith, that unites us all together as one country or one church. So it's a federalist system. That's different from prelacy or hierarchical system. That's different from congregationalism. And you get this in a minute uh, when when you get to the next part. All right? So moving on, um, I don't want to take questions over that anymore. <laughs> oh, and by the way, everybody know what a session is? Kind of took it for granted. A session is a presbytery. But we call it a session. A lo- it's the local church presbytery. So we call it a session. But everything is, I want you to learn that language presbytery. Because that's a more theological term that goes... And, 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 and once you've got that concept, it's a very helpful thing. So session is a local congregation. In our PCA, the session is a local church presbytery. Um, in our denomination, presbytery is a regional church presbytery. In our denomination, General Assembly is a national presbytery. And that's basically what it is. They're all presbyteries. That is, assemblies of elders. Governing as as this represents you through this system that we described. Now, I want to, um, so you, so I show you the passages. <laughs> that was all picky, you know, jumping off of, but basically part one of this handout was just meant to say, hey, guys, uh, there's never been a time in all of the history where there were not elders. 
as part as an essential element of the polity, the, the organization of God's church, Old New Testament. Part two is then I want to go in here and notice the preface. I'm raising the question of offices. PCA Book of Church Order, notice the underline there, and gave all offices necessary for the edification of the church and the perfecting of the saints. That is how Christ mediates. You see that word underlined as well. Christ the mediator is therefore mediately, so so don't get that, notice the distance there in the preface. How many mediators are there between us and God? One. There's only one mediator between God and man, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we call the church the mediatorial body of Christ. What we're saying is Christ is mediated, our mediator is mediated into our lives during his ascension by the Holy Spirit vis-a-vis the church. Immediately he's present, being our mediator. So keep that in your little head. Uh, I didn't mean that little, I just mean that sounded bad. <laughs> That's not really bad. You've got bigger heads than I do. I don't know why I said that. God, it's stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scratch. Put that in your tiny brain. Um, so the question is, I mean, it's a little point. That's really what I was trying to say. Um, question, the question, though, is just notice the word offices, plural. Oh, whoa. How many? How many offices? What are they specifically? How are they distinguished theologically? How are they distinguished by a job description? Kind of the nuts and bolts of all this, right? Notice WSC 30 and 31. The Lord Jesus is king and head of the church, hath there an appointed of government in the hand of church, there it is again, officers. Always making the point that's distinct from civil. So we got officers plural. What are they? What are their job descriptions? Blah, blah, blah. 31.1. Notice something very, very carefully. For the better government and the further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils and belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them. Blah, 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 blah. They, there's a little sleight of hand there that gives you a glimpse into Westminster um, and what their position was. Notice that officers in 31 are distinguished in 30 and 31. One I should be as overseers. That word episkopos is typically the word that English, the English overseers typically translate the word episkopos, sometimes bishop. And notice other rulers. This was deliberate. The other rulers was described from passages, and this is very deliberate. They're not going to turn you to 1 Timothy 3. They're not going to turn you to 1 Timothy 5.17, even though I think they could have. When you go to the Westminster, when you see the proof text, they are going to turn you to Romans. He that ruleth with diligence and a long list of other gifts in the church. They're going to turn you to 1 Corinthians 12.28 and God has set some in the church governments and he's talking again in a long laundry list of, of spiritual gifts and not 1 Timothy 3 or elsewhere. Why? Because they believed in the office of presbyter of which there are going to be lay people assisting them. That's where Westminster was. 
Um, notice one option that's off the table, though. The table, what's off the table, according to the deliberations of Westminster, is to confuse the bishop, pastor, overseer, with other rulers. Hence, the refusal of the Westminster divines to allow any of the proof text relating to elders or presbyters, clergy, to be used to support the work of those whom they preferred to call other church governors. Now, this is a very important thing. Because now we're going to turn to Book of Church Order. Church Book Order, if you read Torrance, enters into the history of a revised second book of discipline into an American context. There are several things they did there. They clarified the church-state issue, for instance, in an American context of church and state. And they clarified, they, they made a continued clarification eventually, especially through Samuel Miller and others, of how to relate these offices together. And here we go. But I hope, I really hope you read Torrance. I don't have the time to review that to you. It's the best essay I've ever read, short version, that helps you understand since the beginning of the church how this issue's been developed. And I don't mean that because I like his position at the end of the day. I mean it because he just, you begin to see that, wow, while we've all conceded that there's presbyters, now we're trying to figure out are presbyters pastors? Are presbyters pastors and lay rulers? Are they just pastors with assisting lay rulers that are ordained or not ordained? I mean, it's unbelievable the debate that goes on through church history. And are they deacon elders? Are they not deacon elders? They're, you know, it just goes on and on. And so there's a little softening here. I say this to be, I gotta be honest, see? I mean, I'm going, I'm not gonna just give you my party line here. The fact is that even our confession has some inherent discrepancy within itself. We haven't really resolved this thing very well. Because if you go to Boko, notice what's gonna say. The office is one of dignity and usefulness. How many offices now? One. Wow, that's not a mistake. The man who fills it has in Scripture all different titles and expressive as his various duties. So now, one office, elder, but different functions. Sometimes it's oversight. Sometimes, and then, then he's called a bishop or pastor, episcopos. Sometimes it's the duty to be grace and prudent, example of the flock, to, be, to govern well. Sometimes it's presbyter or elder as head of a household term. Sometimes he's termed teacher. Hold it. I thought that was a pastor. Yep. Sometimes these titles do not indicate different grades of office, but that's the key phrase. I want you to see that very carefully. These titles do not indicate different grades of office, but all describe one in the same office. So it, barring the issue of whether there are there are officers ordained in apostolic succession to handle alms and mercy, barring that conversation... The PCA is a one-office view, kind of. And what I mean by that is, they're going to now go on to to describe um, this idea that some who are of the office of elder have an aptitude, uh, are more capable of others of teaching. And they'll explain it in, in three or four ways in the BOCO. But basically, just there's a teaching aptitude here. Now, many, before and after American context, get some eyebrows raised on this. Well, hold on, hold on. I thought, you know, if you're going to reference, which the BOCO does, chapter 3 of, of Timothy, 
you're going to see distinguished between the elders and the deacons is that el- the, I mean the episcopos overseer and the deacon. Notice the the, the distinction by the way. This in Genesis in one, well I'm going to, I'm going too fast. Slow down. Look at these other things. Just hold on to that for a minute. So what is the book of assumptions here? Elders, you're an elder by virtue of qualification, not by job description. Even if they're going to be given a job, but it starts with where you're 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 an elder because of who you are and your qualifications. Um, there's a plurality of elders. There's a means of grace. These viewed as a means of grace, all good. But there's these two classes versus offices: ruling elder and teaching elder. How is that derived? Well, in the PCA versus the OPC, who's a three office position, they're going to use First Timothy three one through seven. They're going to say, you've got this overseer, chapter three one through seven. Distinct from another office called deacon, and I'm going to put it aside for them because they don't see that as an elder, the way we think of elder. And yeah, sometimes he's called overseer, like in chapter 3, verse 1. Sometimes he's called these other names. But then they're going to turn to 1 Timothy 5.17. And we're going to read all these in a minute. And he's going to show that uh, uh, there, there's these two kinds of elders. One who's related to teaching, especially those who teach and preach. One who's related just to ruling. That's how they get their argument. That's a different, as you, as I've shown you already, that was not and is not Westminster's argument. They would never reference, you know, First Timothy three for that one office kind of concept. So that's already off the board for Westminster. We showed, but for book of church order, it's on the board. And that's our book, even as we continue to hold to the other book, the Westminster. You see, so we got a little issue here. Now, look at the, the real quickly. Um, there's very, there's hardly anything in the in the book of torture, by the way, to demonstrate what I'm saying that specific that therefore will specifically address pastor as okay. So, what's a pastor supposed to do? There's nothing. The only thing I can find in the whole book of church order that gives me any distinction, or Kevin or Craig, is Boko 10.3, the, the pastor, assuming here the senior pastor, if there's multiple pastors, is for prudential reasons the moderator. So I got a job description. I'm going to moderate the session. And two, um, it's implied that, again, he preaches the gospel. He's the preacher. Ordinarily. But not necessarily. Elders can preach, hypothetically. Isn't there a different ordination process? Oh, yeah, there's a different ordination process to recognize who's apt to teach. But it's not a different job description per se. Yeah. Yeah, all that's true. But, again, in our denomination, a ruling elder, because he's not been recognized as apt to teach, is therefore not going to... That's the distinction. I'm saying that. But he can preach. I mean, that's the big debate. Can he preach? Can he not? But according to the, the, this little first thing you saw in chapter 8, you see, he can, hypothetically. It just rarely happens, it seems. Um, but notice these two important passages again. I've already alluded to one seven in chapter 3, office of overseer. The, and then when you look at the comparison between that and the deacons, basically the only real difference is they have to teach in a little different way of phrasing some of the things. 
Notice the word episkopos is that, is this a pastor teaching elder only, or does this envision both teaching elder and ruling elder? Boko says yes, both. Westminster originally said no, emphatically not both. Um, apt to teach, again, can a person be an elder who is not apt to teach? Now this is one that the d- divines, and this is why the divines said the presbyter only is, if they made the point that the presbyter is the overseer necessarily, then you couldn't be a presbyter if you couldn't teach. And this is one of the main arguments against the Presbyterian, the PCA position that hold it. You know, how do you read chapter 3, 1 through 7 and acknowledge that an elder, so therefore, one of the qualifications for every elder in the church of, of our denomination must be apt to teach, because it's there. That's a qualification. And that's, I would say, very few of, of the elders slash pastors I know, I'm not saying they can, they're not apt to teach or not, they may be able to, but I don't know too many people that actually think that that's a job, that, that before you can be an elder in a church, you have to be someone who can say, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. We have some elders here that would probably say, no, I don't see myself as a teacher. I'm a governor, I'm a good shepherd, but I'm not a teacher. Um, others who may say they are a teacher, fine. But the point is, I don't, I don't know too many, honestly, who would say every, as a job description, you have to be, why? Because we, and, and the examination process doesn't even examine that. We don't even look at that issue. We don't go through those things that he just described that we have to go through. They have to go through other things that they have to do to be able to see that they can make good judgments, theologically, and they're subscribing all that stuff. But teaching mayor, you know, there's a differing opinion there. i got two hands. Go ahead. I don't have a lot of time, so I'll, I'll do it quickly. Just quickly then. Um, so the teaching elder, um, if all the pastors were gone, could technically teach from the pulpit? Or a teaching elder? Ruling. You mean a ruling elder? You meant a ruling elder, right? You said a teaching elder if all the pastors were gone. Well, that is a teaching elder. Teaching elder is a pastor. Right. Okay, so what's your question? So could a ruling elder preach? Yeah, that's what you're asking. Technically, under Boko, I think so. They do in the PCA. Yeah. I mean, well, the reason I'm saying technically, and I think so, there are certain jurisdictions, local churches that will say yes, there are certain churches that will say no. That's one of those areas where you just, depends on the church. Your question? No, I was just going to say, ask, is there a difference between uh, teaching as it, it happens on Sunday morning versus you yeah. know, instructing the congregation? In the yes, morning? there I mean, is. I, you would want every elder to be able to do that. Well, not necessarily, though. I don't know that I would necessarily expect to have, force every elder to have to do that, but um, I wouldn't in my view. But, um, but if you hold to this view, yeah, you would say every elder should be able to teach somewhere. Now, is, is a small group leader a teacher or a facilitator? You know, you get into all these little... But yes, generally speaking, most elders have the ability to lead and to some degree teach um, in some kind of a context. But yes, the distinction of word and sacrament, which is a... Remember, the difference between worship and every other event that we have is worship is commanded of you. So there's a much higher level and bar. And they also see the preaching rightly, although, again, I'm afraid a lot of us have lost connection with this. They saw preaching and sacraments as a single event. I mean, they come together. The, the sacrament is meant to be. It's 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 it's. How do I say it? It's a, it's a visible preaching. It's sort of a visible preaching, I guess. But yeah, they're the two are together, and so word and sacrament you see all often used together because we see the credentials to do the two. And they and remember, sacrament deals with jurisdiction issues: who comes, who doesn't. How do we how do we declare that? You know, and teach those who should and should not come. And there's a lot there that's going on jurisdictionally that um, that uh, I guess. 
to discern that. So yeah, there's a lot of... I mean, look, I'm just saying, I'm saying it on tape, I know, but there's a lot of inconsistencies because there's a lot of ambiguity within the the, the transition from the mainland to this mainland, I guess. And, and, and there's sort of this, you know, there's a lot of stuff. We're all kind of going at it, to be honest. But Boko is Boko. Westminster is Westminster. And um, we're, we're kind of stuck. You think there's probably the same hesitancy, though, in those churches for the ruling elder to administer the sacrament? Oh yeah! In fact, that's almost. I think that's when they're. I think they can. I'm not sure if they can. I think they can under extraordinary situations. Tied together, you would think that if you can't do money, you'd even think maybe because of the certain requirements you have for people who want to go to seminary and do more things, that you would have a higher bar for the service. Well, we clearly we clearly have a rule that makes it exceptional. So we're getting into some minutiae, but you can't preach. You no one can preach uh, regularly. In our denomination, unless you've been licensed, so you have. There's a licensure process. So, if a ruling elder, a ruling elder, can be licensed to preach, and then he would be authorized to preach, but not do sacraments technically. Um, uh, But he would every year have to renew that. Every year, he'd have to go back to presbytery and get it renewed, and that's not be a perpetual. One more to clarify. So, are you saying that Westminster is is ambiguous on the two or three office view? And Boko takes a side, or no. you saying that Boko actually conflicts with Westminster? They clearly conflict with what Westminster decided. Now remember, when you say Westminster, do you mean the historic Westminster Assembly, or do you mean Westminster, the living document that we're continuing to work on? So the, the former, definitely, they, were, they made it very clear, uh, as I showed you there. Um, the, the latter, the living document, how do we interpret what I just said in Chapter 30? You know, and Boko has their interpretation of it. Even though I would argue, I pointed out a little nuance that I honestly, I rarely hear people notice, except for those who've really studied it hard. And it just shows you, at least, it's the old, the historic Westminster is still present in Westminster. We did, we did not, uh, we did not make a lot of changes to Westminster Confession of Faith in the subscription after 1729. There, there was not a lot of changes. The main one was the civil issue. And that was in 1729 when we took it and adopted it and we formed a Presbyterian church in America. Um, the, uh, but, 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 so you see that most of it's laid, kept intact. Okay, notice then, very carefully, a couple other observations. 8 through 13, deacons, likewise. Now, likewise? There's a debate. Are you mean deacons, elders, likewise? As in de- likewise, elder deacons versus Overseer deacons? You see, see that likewise? Or do you mean more, I can't remember the grammatical term for this, somebody can help me, but, or do you mean it more, is that the uh, substantive? Or do you mean likewise in the sense that, um, likewise, the qualifications are, in other words, I've just given you qualifications, and now again, I've given you qualifications. So, just as I've given you qualifications for the overseer, now I'm giving you qualifications for the deacon. In other words, it doesn't decide the question of whether a deacon is a, over, a, a, a subcategory of or whatever overseer or not, or an elder. Now, I just, then you have, so those are the questions there. Then look at chapter 5 or 17 in the same pastoral epistle. Let the elders, hold it now, remember, stop. A lot of people make this mistake. The word elder has not showed up, I don't think, yet in the pastoral epistles. Unless it was the very beginning, but I don't think it was. It shows up in, in Titus. Appoint elders in every town. 
but the word elders, if I'm not mistaken, has not showed up yet. A lot of people think, oh, they make the, the kind of simple mistake, you know, oh yeah, elders, they're described in chapter 3, verse 1, etc. No. Overseers is the word. Episcopos, not presbyters. And deacons. So now you have, let the elders, hold it, who are the elders? And then he defines elders in two classes or two offices, depending on which you go. One who rules well, and especially the one who teaches, who therefore deserves the double honor of being able to make a living doing it, basically is what it says. And so um, that's an interesting thing. Now, personally, you know, and, well, I'll just say Torrance, and I'm sympathetic to it, argues that what he's doing is exactly what you have done under the Sanhedrin, which was to have elders descriptive of both Levites and lay rulers. They formed a council, Presbytery. And therefore, he's saying, there it is. You You got it right there. And as it happens... When you do have a salutation that specifically and formally addresses a church by the leaders of another church, isn't it interesting that the two names given are overseers and deacons? Just like chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and 8 through whatever, 14. So that's an argument right there, right? Whereas, another argument would be that the elders in chapter 5 are chapter 5 is speaking about overseers that's the PCA in other words the overseer well he's sometimes called an elder sometimes he's called a bishop sometimes he's called you know you got that argument and he's just distinguishing the fact that with within elders there are some who make a living by preaching and that's what they're addressing now you could from 517 make the case for either so that's what gets me into a redemptive historical argument. Now, this is some good work right here, I just got to say. <laughs> okay. No, I do. And that's mostly derived from other sources, but, but it's good work. Um, because what you're going to now do, we, I hope that you'll go home and read it. But what's going to be very, very important if you're interested in this issue is that you'll see this two office system. Through all of redemptive history, it walks you through. I'm quoting some some very good sources here. Um, uh, I've summarized this. This this came out of a paper that was 20 you know pages long. This is I think three, <laughs> so you can appreciate this, uh, the brevity of it. Believe it or not, but I want you to get down to the very uh, on page nine. Two office comparison and contrast. So lay so now you have potentially lay elders and. Uh, well, and, and here, by the way, here, here's why I don't get my, my well, I was going to say something, and I think that's sexist, so I won't. Um, you knew what I was going to say, didn't you? What was I going to say, Janine? You say. Yes, I was going to say panties and a wad. And I realized that's probably not the way I should say it. Maybe you were. How many people appreciate that I didn't say it and I made Janine say it? Was that not fun? There you go. I did stop. See, I'm being sensitive to y'all's criticism of my bad upbringing. All right. Thank you, Janine. Saved my life. Um, but but the, so I don't get upset about this because functionally, with the exception that the Boko has a very weak view and allows for all kinds of 
possible abuses, but generally they're not abuses that happen in the PCA, thankfully. So I don't think it's as good a constitutional document, Arboco, as, as it could be, is what I'm trying to say on this particular issue. But generally, in terms of how it all works out in the life of the congregation, the two-and-a-half view and the three-office view, or two, what I'm calling the... Y'all, let me just make this really clear because I'm going to say it both ways, I know. When I say three-office view, what I'm referring to is a two-office elder view and a deacon, Elms, and, and, and Mercy. They wouldn't see the deacon as the, as the elder. So I'm in agreement with the three-office view when it comes to the office of elder. Even if I, like Torrance and I think many others, have argued that the grounds for that two-office view is incredibly flimsy, the three-office view, when it comes to the ruling elder. The ruling elder becomes simply an afterthought quotation in a long laundry list of gifts as the only source you can go to. And if you want a great, if some of you are know, want church history, go look at Smith, S-M-Y-T-H, 19th century. He pretty much, along with Samuel Miller, uh, or he pretty much dismantled Samuel Miller in a debate that took place in the 19th century for in favor of the three-office view. But you'll see it right there in his... He had a, what's called an ecclesial catechism. I might give that to you, by the way, before we're through. I used to give that. I think I gave that to you all when you went through. There's an ecclesiastical catechism, very, very detailed, and um, it's really a cool little piece. Um, but anyway, just I want you to hear this clearly. If you're a three-office view, the reason I have a problem with that is, honestly, the only two passages you can go to that gives you any reason to ordain, literally lay hands, which, remember, came out of a tradition. Westminster would not have laid hands on them, only the pastor elders. Um for elders in the church was these two little afterthought almost list of, of gifts. What I'm going to say with a very large majority of people as well is within our tradition is no, the deacon is that other office of elder. Okay? And I've already made a little bit of a case for it, and it's here. It fits redemptive history, it fits the Sanhedrin, it fits what I believe is a proper reading of Acts 6. That that servant, deacon, is, if not a pastor, at least a lay elder, Stephen, for example. And on it goes. And it makes sense of the salutations. I just, it just, it, to me, it's an amazingly strong argument, but it just, it's hard to get our heads around. Can you name the three offices, please? Three offices, uh, pastor, overseer, deacon, elder, ruling elder, and, uh, and uh, those are the two offices. Hold it. Three, you said the three offices. Okay, so the three offices would be pastor, elder, and um, deacon. Deacon being an alms giver or manager, servant. Elder. Well, no, 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 no. Okay. It's all. It's in here. You can find it in here, I promise. It's all in here, but I'm going to make it clear what, so you can hear it in your head. Three offices. What page is it? All three of them are the options. Yeah, there you go. Page six. Look at the options there. Option one is three L, uh, three. I say plus because you know Calvin had another office called teacher, etc. But three plus position. Um, and there it is. You have the bishop, pastor. You have other assisting rulers, and I, I use that firm term intentionally because there is no word for them in the Bible other than a description of what they do. That's why I, I find this weak. But they at least exist. And you have deacons. Mercy. Kind of like what our servant leader board is. There's another position, the 2.5 office, which says, no, there are elders. Some function more as teachers than others do. 
and therefore will be your pastor versus not. But you have elders, one office, teaching elder, ruling elder, types, but one office, and then deacons, mercy ministry again. Yeah. Just to say, as a new ruling elder in PCA, yeah. taking the view of the book of church order, it leads to a confusion, I think, on the part of what the calling really is. Yeah. Is yeah. Job, which is demanding. Yeah. But seeing this, whoa, should I be studying theology all the time? Yeah. Be aspiring to be. Yeah. You know, and I'd say yes, always study theology, always. <laughs> yeah. So then the third position that I show you, and these are all within our traditions. Um, there are a lot of other positions out there in the world. You know that. There's a two-office position: bishop, elder. As in, think about First Timothy three. You got elders. Some are called overseers. Some, one office is the overseer elder. Another is the deacon elder. The deacon elder would be like Stephen if he was. I just don't know which elder he was. Was he a teaching elder or a ruling elder? But see, both. Why, what I was saying is that within the PCA, we do distinguish, and in the way they function, most people recognize intuitively there's a big difference between a pastor and a, and a, a teaching elder and a ruling elder. I mean, one's making a living at it, one's got a different qualification set, and all this other stuff. So it works out all right, normally, but there's a lot of room for abuse. Okay, And that's what you're going to see there. Um, notice the two office comparison and contract. This is a wonderful, redemptive, historically t- informed um, uh, uh, historical context. Yeah. Uh, who, who said something? Oh, I thought you were getting me. And that's going to conclude, um, I'm going to let one more question or two, but that's going to conclude this issue of offices. Um, we're going to have about a 45 minutes or so for this next section. And then we're going to have maybe 30 minutes max for the uh, discussion on, on how we talk and deliberate. All right? Do we need another break or can we go right to the sentence? We're going to, let's go right to the sentence because we're going to actually be breaking up anyway in small groups. So, Kevin, you're on. Sentence? That's called part two, sentence and councils. That's Witherow. That's Witherow. Witherow is just a subtopic within it all. Here? We're, we're functionally two and a half. Two. Two. That's right. Why? Because we don't have a deacon board. We do have, but we have a very high view of, of that ministry in terms of a. And we don't that's a good question. Let me just answer Or are we We The session, I don't know. I, I, we took a vote a while back. I think it was before you got here. Um, everybody, since you've been here on that issue, I don't think you did. While back, we had a session, a vote, and it, a two-office view won, but not strongly. And so we decided not to have a, you know, we're just not going to move for the definable What we do is, in what's clearly the case in our Book of Church Order, is that a church does not need deacons to be an organized church. You need a pastor, and you need a session, an elders. And so we just said, let's, and, 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 and the position of the two office view is that the alms and mercy is under the authority of the session, even if then the session will, like it did in the New Testament, appoint what I call organizational leadership. That's different, different from spiritual jurisdictional leadership. So now I just gave you a new category. There's spiritual jurisdictional leadership, and then there's what I call organizational leadership. Organizational leadership is, a good example would be, Again, whether Phoebe is a deacon elder or not, there's a big debate. But regardless, whatever Phoebe was in chapter 16 of Romans, she had authority. Do what she says, Paul says. But it was an authority at the very least that was organizational. She was tasked 
with a with a job to put an organization together in order to do to, to collect alms, etc. And she did in, in Rome. And so what we do is have a servant leader board who are tasked with organizational authority, not jurisdictional spiritual authority, as in to rule over your relationship to Christ, to to manage the, the alms and the, and the mercy ministries of our church, the one another in our church. So for all intents and purposes, that is a deacon board. We just don't it, it, it functions like a PCA deacon board does. Yeah, except for the spiritual. It, the, there's no, but we don't lay hands on it. Right. And in our tradition, it's men and women. Okay. And you can help your doctor. It's a hands-off yeah. deck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bishop Graham. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, so uh, we're going to go to 11.30. I think you said I have 45 minutes. Yeah. So 11.30 is when we're going to stop. Uh, a couple things we're going to accomplish. Uh, I just want to orient us to Witherow a little bit. And then... Uh, have a discussion, and then when we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about what this looks like in the flesh with the PCA. Um, I want to just, we, we did a little bit of this, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch, but I, I got some copies of it. I noticed that in, Preston, in the packet Preston put together, you took stuff from the, the uh, BOCO, I took stuff from our website, uh, and, and from our Presbyterian's website, and from our denomination's website, so that gives you a little bit more of the flesh of what it looks like. Uh, now, and that so you, now you got both. That was I put that because that was in my. I didn't do that for this meeting. I just put it in there. I'll tell you. You didn't why. think I was going to get to it, so you no, decided no, to put no, it. No, that's not true. <laughs> what I'm saying is, I'm not going to cover it. Yeah. No. So don't think I am. You yeah, yeah. It. Okay, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But you, you got both sources in there, so I think you're going to get a good picture of what it looks like in the flesh in our denomination. Um, did you did you guys like Withero? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think he's. I think he's really clear. His arguments are very sound, and I would, I, if you didn't, if you didn't read through Witherow with a Bible, I would require. I would. I would ask you to just go back and look through these passages again, because you see what he's doing in in making that case. He's really just kind of fleshing out this view of what the church was uh, from Scripture. Now I know we did a lot of that this morning, and I, I don't want to rehash it, um, but you just think about. Maybe typically what either you had thought or what others think about with the church in the New Testament uh, or Christians in the New Testament. What are some of the things that that you you know maybe have have thought about um, with the church? What's what's common? What is it? What does it look like? What is it characterized by? You mean like our. Our guesses before we maybe yeah before you got into Witherow before maybe you've taken this class um, or you know others around you that what, what you're saying is a popular view of the, of the church in the New Testament what do you yeah I think what I said at the beginning about like let's just get back to the simplicity of the beginning of the church in the New Testament which is people yeah. together and right really, right uh, right yeah know, yeah organization. yeah no organization people just getting together moved by the Spirit yeah. There was always that four points. They met weekly for fellowship, for you know, for the breaking. Okay. So, so there was always so okay. those four so, points. I always thought that was on my mind. So even even before this class, you thought there was yeah. okay. So there was some structure. There's some pattern that we should yeah. pick up on. Yeah. Always. How about government? Yeah, the people infrastructure. Uh huh. Well, it's, you yeah. you always had. I always felt plurality. 
not just a pastor, I always call it an elders plural. Okay. Um, okay. Then loose ends. I mean, I guess that that was just from reading the scripture itself. It was self-explanatory. Okay. The arguments that I'd heard previously around uh, Presbyterianism um, had always centered only around accountability. Yeah, pragmatic. This, right. this works. This like our government uses this, so you know checks and balances. This right. is wise. This is the problem with that. Is, well, according to Withrow, the problem with that is you don't see the error mm. of the others. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you'll say there's a lot of reasons why they work out really well. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't get some of the negatives that come. Yeah. We, I, maybe we should talk about some of those, you know, negatives that if we're just trying to devise a system that will get to an end, that Presbyterian may have some problems with it. Yeah, if, if you call what I said, he, he flat out says that, that those are an error. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have always actually wondered why hierarchical is problematic. Um, mm. I think practically I can see why it might be problematic in terms of like, us as sinners, but it's like, well, if Christ is the head of the church, then that's not a reason not to do something necessarily. Mm-hmm. So thinking, well, if Christ is head of the church, then shouldn't there be a watershed hierarchical system? Wouldn't that keep Christ? Isn't it create a pyramid that would keep Christ at the head? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was interesting to see that. Yeah, Pope yeah, just kind of exposed some of that um, negatively. Um, yeah, I mean, if I if I can think of a when I when I first became a Christian, in this this thought of their church, the the epistles and Acts, you got this romantic idea of what the early church believers were, and this this okay, you're gathering together and you're doing this all because the Spirit is moving you, not because there's some institution, right? Um, highly individualized. You know, you read the epistles and you hear, uh, how does Paul address, how does Paul address people in the epistles? Mostly you, right? Second person. And you read it second person singular. But it's second, if you read it second person plural, all of a sudden, you start reading these differently. You know, it's a, it's a whole bunch of Paul's letters are y'all. You know, we, we miss that in, in translation. Um, we identify individuals when we read narratives like the like Acts of the Apostles or the Gospels. So we, let, we think less about churches acting. Anti-institutional. Where does that come from? If you read the Bible, where does anti-institutional come from? Because you might be able to see it in there. Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Who likes these religious, these elders and these Pharisees? Are you talking about elders, a denomination of elders? Doesn't that, isn't that who Jesus attacks? I mean, if you, you start getting the ethos of the way some people read the Bible in, in this democratized uh, evangelicalism, uh, all those things are bad. The temple is corruption. Power, these power structures have, have worked to, to dampen the spirit. And Jesus and his little band of followers are there to to overthrow things. Um, you know, rituals. Circumcision is bad. Torah is, you know, looked down upon. It's, I mean, okay, hopefully you, you guys are getting some hermeneutics that uh, would be able to challenge that, but if a cursory reading of some of this stuff, you just feel like institution and these symbols are things that the New Testament is overthrowing, not setting up and supporting. And last world... 
Right, yeah. Making their roots yeah, things like government. You know, it's not, they're, it, it seems like the New Testament's not concerned with that. We're concerned with the next life. Um, modern translations. Um, Joe Colm Bishop, you know, they, you read it, the overseers and and elders smooth out some things that are a little bit more in your face. Maybe older translations say bishops uh, and presbyters and things like that that might bring it out uh, a little bit in your face. But I would encourage you, read the New Testament with an eye to the assumption that what all we've been talking about this morning is there. That there was that, read it with the assumption that there is institution. Intentional institutional uh, design that God puts in, and if you start doing that, it starts popping all over the place. Where you read the epistles and you read Acts, and oh wait, they're not just laying on hands because they like the person or because they're going through this nice little warm ritual about spirituality. They're they're laying on hands because there's it's it's a redemptive historical event that's happening, or there's a significant move that's that's going on here as they're appointing somebody. When they talk about the church gathered together and appointing, I mean, all these passages he just brought out, sometimes you just read through it and skim over it because it just seems like a real spiritual, pietistic way to do it. But if you go with the assumption that God is actually setting up a design for for uh, for church government, it'll start really jumping off the page where you, where you see these things. Um, so I, I would encourage us to operate with certain assumptions. One, believe that God actually addresses church government. Great, great uh, introduction that we've had all, all morning on that. Uh, go with the assumption that God institutes this, that it's in his word and it's clear for us. Two, that it does so consistently. Um, now, I was trained in, in biblical studies, and so whenever somebody says, okay, so Paul says it this way, and then you're, you're trained to think, well, okay, don't assume that Peter says it this way or that Acts all agree, but I think as Christians we have to say this is God's word. And so Acts does agree with uh, Paul. It does agree with Peter. And so there is a consistent message, not just on what justification by faith alone means, but on how... Um, church government is put out there. So when Peter says something about elders, we should say that that should complement and fill in um, and support what we read in Acts. That it's one picture and not the myth that somehow this was developed in the next generation or two generations or evolved over time. Um, And then thirdly, um, with the intention, we should read with the following assumption to uh, the intention of establishing precedent for us to apply. That, that what's in Scripture is done as a precedent for us. Not, oh, you know, they operated that way when they were that first-generation church. But, you know, history is, has moved on and sort of an evolution in church history. So we've learned now, maybe even pragmatically, we've learned that the best way to do it is this way. If you start reading the Scripture that way, you're getting to what is fundamental to Witherow's thesis, is that this is found in scripture, we can count on it, and it is important for us today to determine um, how we should have church government. So Does that make sense? Um, I, I don't know how, how to express how foreign that seemed to me as a young Christian, and, and oftentimes 
even thinking about ministry um, for the, you know, for my my early development just wasn't there. Um, and there may be many reasons for that. Um, we, we kicked around a few already, but um, but when you start doing that, then you get to Witherow's point that okay, this really does matter then. And and all the benefits you guys have talked, I don't want to rehash it all. Um, but I, I love the quote he has here in, in page 17. So I'll just um, I'll just kind of start us with this. It's, he says, uh, I'll jump around in this quote a little bit, but the Christian society is represented in Scripture as a kingdom. Uh, the fact of its being a kingdom is nece- kingdom necessarily implies at least three things: first, a king or govern a governor; secondly, subjects; and thirdly, laws. In the church or kingdom of God, the king is Christ. Subjects are believers, and the laws are the scriptures of truth. And then he and then he makes the point: every king has officers under him who are charged with the execution of his laws, who have authority from the crown to do justice and judgment. Judges and magistrates are the office bearers of the kingdom, deriving their power from the monarch under whom they serve and putting the laws in force among all ranks and classes. What do you hear in that quote? There's a bunch of things, but... Uh, it's not in a packet you have. Sorry. That's it's not. I have to qualify. Do I need to read it again? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what's page 17? Uh, it's I'm in the book with her up. Um, page 17. Um, uh, it's, it's well, in my copy of the book. Uh, sorry. Shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have done that. Um, Listen with your ears, not with your eyes. The Christian society is represented in Scripture as a kingdom. The fact of its being a kingdom necessarily implies three things, the king, a governor, and the subjects. Uh, Sorry, a king, subjects, and the laws. And in the church, or the kingdom of God, the king is Christ, the subjects are the believers, and the third, the law are the scriptures of truth. Every king has officers under him who are charged with the execution of his laws and who have authority from the crown to do justice and judgment. Judges and magistrates are the office bearers of a kingdom, deriving their power from the monarch under whom they serve and putting the laws in force among all ranks and classes. This is about as big picture as it goes. What is he saying about Christ and and believers in Christ? Christ and Christians. Well, it's putting in context that he is a king and we are the subjects yeah. under his rule. So it's right. not that there are governors mediating that rule is a, a good thing. Yeah. It's yeah. not a free-for-all for us. Yeah. That's radical. Because that means that, that he's going to be intentional as he reigns as your king in, in setting up polity. That's how he governs our lives. The other thing you notice about that is what is it saying about these magistrates? Yeah, yeah, it's not independent. Cannot, Craig and Preston and I cannot put any authority into your lives that's not derived from that king. Um, When we do so, 
if by not, not by good and necessary inference from Scripture itself, we are acting out of our authority, uh, outside of the authority given to us. Uh, but the flip side of that, what happens when we do act in that authority? And that, that's derived from it. You can guarantee that that's Christ's authority because it, it comes under under him. It gets kind of fleshed out in that way. So hearing an absolution, receiving a baptism has nothing. You know, when, you, when we baptize somebody, uh, is not us baptizing. That's, that's a huge thing. So it doesn't rely on my character or my flaws or my craziness of theology in some way. It's, it's acting as a representative of Jesus Christ. And so we can... We can, um, I can really appreciate that. Um, so I, I just want to throw that out there about the reality of there is always church government. And then Witherow identifies three, he says there's only three types of church government. Did that, did that surprise you that you think about all the denominations that there really is only three? What does he say? What are the three? Prelacy. Prelacy. Independency and Presbyterian, yeah. Um, hierarchical structure, independency, um, which is uh, so hierarchical structure you'll find in Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Episcopal, Anglican, and uh, Methodist to some degree. Um, independence, who's an independent? Yeah, Congregationalists, Baptist churches. Um, even even if you're part of some convention, uh, you're you still don't your authority still resting in their individual individual churches. Um, and then the Presbyterians, who are most reform, you have some reform denominations um, and and Presbyterian denominations, and that's it. Lutheran is hierarchical. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that, that is really it. I mean, I thought, well, maybe individual Christians who don't associate themselves with church, but that's independent, you know? That's, their government is very, very independent. It's themselves. Um, but, so what Withero then does is, these are the three, let's, let's, let's then bring it to Scripture. So that's, that's my jumping off point. Um, and I want y'all to interact with the question. So I just, I just gave you a handout. It has, uh, I believe, four questions. And I'd love for you in your groups, if you're at a table by yourself, you have to answer them by yourself. Now, join, join, no independency here. Join a table um, and go through these questions. Uh, I tried to make them as, as pra- practical um and seeing the outwork as well as possible. So um, we're going to do this for about uh, 20 minutes, and then I'm going to come back up and give you some PCA stuff. Do we throw a person into our table? Joining and receiving. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably overwhelming majority. They're hard to pinpoint. So, like, it's a positive experience when I like benefit the sound decisions of our sound decisions of our sessions. You know, mm-hmm. but like to pinpoint all of those is, is like thankfully yeah. too numerous to even really ye
Anybody have, have a hard time saying, you know, that first question about could we call one form of government true and another one in error? Reese does? Yeah. Yeah. Don't call him out or anything. <laughs> well, he raised his hand. He was, he was clearly saying that, um, so you're saying truth doesn't matter is what I'm... <laughs> so, no, no, explain. Yeah. Make sure you get that on record. Yeah, no, it's on, it's, the recording is going here. <laughs> What, so what? What's the issue? Um, you know, I think with prelacy, we often quickly point to the abuses of that form of government. Uh, it's particularly with the Roman Catholic Church. Prelacy exists, obviously, even within um, Reformed Protestant um, yeah. churches. And so, I guess I haven't heard. I, I guess we didn't flesh out what the errors in that policy if abuses don't creep in, if bad theology doesn't creep in, but just as far as the government of the church through some hierarchy that still has Christ at the head of the church, what would be wrong with um, sort of that hierarchical uh, church government? Yeah, so maybe that's worth getting into that discussion. Um, but, you know, who's the head of CPC New Haven? Jesus Christ. Where's the capital of the PCA? It's not Lawrenceville, Georgia. It's heaven. You know, I think I think it's not and what he's saying, he made a, a, like a really strong point to say it's not hierarchy. Um, and, and so it's 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 easy to confuse the the courts, the, the appellate system with with hierarchy um, in some form. But, you know, I, I hear the, the other point is the historical point. Um, I do think you need to re-engage s- some of the, um, the negatives of what, a, what prelacy brings. But the, um, the, the, the real point is, yes, all of our scripture and exegesis is informed and helped in our interpretation as we look at church history. But, uh, but it, it can't. It can't rest upon that. It, it doesn't have authority on its own. Um, and it, I, we mentioned just in the group that Luther was struggling about this with justification by faith alone. He's he's anxious to say, could this really be true if fifteen hundred years of of uh, the church has been saying something contrary? Uh, we have to go back to scripture and say uh, it seems extremely clear in the way that and Witherow put, puts it out the. That bishop and elder are used interchangeably. That plurality of elders are seen in congregations, and how that functions as they send representatives um, federally. They send representatives to uh, uh, a regional and universal, in, in, the, in the case of Acts 15, uh, deliberation process. So, um, it's it's really, I think, the onus on the pro- people. Of, for prelacy to say, not just was this in in church history, but is this in scripture? Yeah, I think it's interesting that he that he, that he brings out and he kind of uh, boils the, the the everything about church government that he quoted for us in the scriptures and pointed to the scriptures yeah. on boiled it down to six elements. Yes, and yes. then um, and then okay, 
which form of government embodies the six elements that we found in Scripture. Right. I thought it was a very logical way to lay out the, the argument. Right. I almost said Ireland. It was really great. Yeah, yeah it's good that he's Irish. Yeah, that's St. Patrick's Day. Who didn't push you know, the Church of Scotland onto a pedestal. Yeah. It, was, it was really refreshing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, it, but, you know, that I think it's important to see, and, you know, if, uh, he struggles with that. He didn't think, was he, st- the book, uh, I don't know if you read, if it's, I can't remember if it's in the book, but he, he talks about his own struggle with this. He didn't think he was going to wind up with Presbyterianism as, as he gets into this study. And I think we have to be open with that when we get to Scripture. Um, I would qualify that in some sense, which we do read this in context. We, we do read our scriptures and interpret our scriptures, not just to come out with surprises of things. Um, but it, it becomes so overwhelming, I think, when we, we go to this, that um, it's hard to, to say historically, the historical interpretation can outweigh. Um, and, and again, we're talking about a, a time in church history that if you take, as Preston's mentioned here, go back to Moses, so we're, we're talking what? A, a matter of 4,000 years of church history, there is a thousand years, a quarter of that has gotten maybe incorrect error, error in prelacy, rather than just saying, oh, just this this, this amount, the percentage of it is so so much in error. So the organization, organization in First Deuteronomy was uh, appellate-based, not hierarchical-based? They were, they were Presbyterians. <laughs> yes, card carrying members. Yeah. It's PCS, uh, Presbyterian Church of Sinai. Just because I appreciate the humor, I can say that. Yeah, I know. I, well, I, I firmly believe it. I mean, that's where, when I, when I had polity class, that's where we started. Started in Exodus 18, started with Jethro. And, um, and that's important. And, that, and I think the Jewish, uh, as he was mentioning with uh, the Sanhedrin, they are seeing this so intuitively. That's how they structure things. And the early church, within their continuity, said this is this is correct. And I think it got uh, there's lots of reasons why I think it got off the track. But that's not really we have to say the fundamental authority here is is scripture. And um, can we can we exegetically get there? Emily, just to be clear, we would not say that a church that uses a different form of polity on, because of the polity that they choose that we would not consider them a gospel-believing church. It's correct. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, the, we, that is not... But my question, my, the way I put it in here is, is error. And we, we should be able to say that their polity is an error. The size of their church building, the paint that they choose, whether they put a steeple on the, the thing or a, a rooster, all those things, I think sometimes church government gets lumped in with that. The type of vestments of somebody, you know, all all that other stuff. We say, well, church, that's like church government. It's all up for grabs. And what we're arguing here is, uh uh-huh, no, no, that, that is a matter of saying truth or error. That is that is a matter of saying this is either, and that's what Witherow's point is, that this is either from God and and it's true or it's false. And it's and the implications of that is going to be problems. And we're not going to say it's not a church. We're not going to say it's not affecting the gospel. Um, but I think it's important to say it's, it's, it shouldn't be lumped in with uh, the forms, just mere forms. And just, just to speak to that, and I agree. I think there are nuances, though, to your question answered, which is, you're right. We would, there are many uh, other polity churches that we would say 
One, our gospel-centered, healthy churches along many lines. And two, you know, Presbyterianism is, is again, I don't mean to just count out of this, but it's really a, a reformational movement of Anglicanism. I mean, Anglicanism isn't that far away. So there are form. What I'm trying to some forms of Anglicanism. So some forms of there's so many degrade, degrades, gradations here. You have you have the Anglican Church, Cranmer, etc., who significantly reformed hierarchicalism from the Roman context. So it's not as if you don't have. You know, we're just a form that moved over the line of, of moving away from this hierarchicalism uh, of the Roman system that had been constructed. And we move into a presbyterial versus hierarchical system altogether, but as we were talking the other day, there's, uh, there's gradations. There's high Presbyterianism, there's low Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. There's high Anglicanism, there's low Anglicanism. There's ways in which we practice within, like I just said about the 2.5 view and the 3 view and the 2 view, in practice, you may not necessarily always distinguish the difference between us. Um, you know, while there is a distinct hierarchical system in many Prelacy movements, they function very much like Presbyterians would function in many cases. And I would say the same thing about Presbyterians in terms of how we function. You know, we, we have a joke sometimes in that some of these church planning networks become like Anglican you know, here are, you, know, you have a you have a, a bishop slash the movement leader, and you have the you know. So there's a kind of and there's some value to it. I mean, one of the things that I think our denomination, because we're sometimes too overly fearful of hierarchicalism, there's a real need though in our denomination for in pastoral relations. We call it the categorical pastoral relationships, where it would be great to have a bishop kind of person hanging around. Ministering, discipling the younger pastors, helping congregations in the relationship with their pastors. We have had a committee, supposed you know, in our denomination, but it's a committee that almost never functions nearly as well, honestly, as how I see Anglicanism functioning with a bishop in place who's a gospel-centered bishop. So what I'm trying to say here is there's a lot of play here in that when we start talking about judging other denominations, there are, you know, he is, we are, we are, we're adamant to say that we think Presbyterianism is a biblical form of government. Yeah. And, and it's not the same as hierarchical, it's not the same as independence. Yeah. But we're also going to be clear to say that none of us are so perfectly principled in the way that we actually execute these ministries to where we don't find ourselves in various denominations I'm just talking about not utilizing some of the other, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, so that's important, you know, because I don't think any denomination has a form of truth, of course, and I don't think that there, there may be an aspect of Presbyterianism. If you read Torrance, you see it, because he's he's pretty angry. Yeah. And if you read, you say, gosh, you know, there's some, I think there's some things about true Presbyterianism that are not happening in the PCA. And I, I would argue that if we had a little higher office, a view of the office of pastor in the PCA, you might find a better pastoral relations network going on in our denomination, the way I see it in denominations that have a very high view, i.e. pastors with definitive job descriptions, congregations that know what to expect and not to expect from their pastors, 
somebody appointed as a kind of mentor pastor, if you want to call it that, who is shepherding the pastors. We don't have people shepherding the pastors here. And as I mentioned with my friend Foley, you know, as an archbishop, what's your job, Foley? My number one job is to shepherd the pastors. And I solve it. I go, oh, wouldn't I have loved that as a young minister? And we're trying to create some of that here. Yep. So just yeah. Be, be yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I would just, I would just say that, um, uh, amen to that. We, the, the the beauty of Withrow is again back to the scriptures, trying to figure that out exegetically. We when you start going into the historical origins of some of these denominations, it's going to get messy. You know, even Westminster is formed sort of in an Erastian context, or as, as the the Parliament is appointing this body to look look into these issues of, of scripture. Um, Anglicanism begins with Henry being the head of the church. I mean, it's whatever, there's been a lot of reformation in all these things to, to clear it up, but for us as a guide, we have to say, where's scripture? What's scripture saying? Um, yes? Do you, uh, do you feel much of the, the tension between uh, the descriptive and normative aspects of like Acts, like we're going to Acts to see what the apostles were doing? Do you at all, does it ever give you pause, like, well, this is, even if I'm convinced of what they did, do I know for sure if it's what they should have done? And then when you look back at the Old Testament, sort of similar questions might jump up in certain so, situations. Like, there's a yeah, new principle. Right, like, exactly. Like, and how that, do you work that, that out? Like, it feels like a little bit of a tension to me. But if, if the scripture, you, if you see the scripture, this is good for our exegesis, Bible inter class, if you see the scripture only as a window to try to get real history, and and then you're left as the okay is that good or is that bad? But I'm just getting it through the through the lens here. Um, I'm not well, I'm not sure. Or, right? Well, what I'm what I'm getting to though is that I'm convinced that Luke and Paul and Peter um, give us guys as to say this is the way. This is, this is is normative and instructive for us, not just. And we need to be wise in, in interpreting it. Is it a bad example or is it a good example? And I think there's enough clues that Luke gives us as he's trying to guide and direct the church to say, there's enough clues to say what the deposit here in Scripture is laying down is used for us as instruction to apply now, today. Right. It's and, just, it seems like there, there might be, I don't know, on certain subtle questions, a little bit of difficulty of coming down extremely definitively. Like, oh, yeah. Luke definitely meant this by including this passage here. Yeah. Um, like, well... Seems maybe likely. So, or, yeah, uh, I, 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 I could. I it's could, a little bit yeah, of the truth that, versus error issue that, um, like, it, you might be able to come down fairly definitively at the end of the day, but you know, not every little piece of evidence is in and of itself super clear. Yeah, you know? which gets back to maybe the first thing I said, which if you go with the lens that this is intentional, then all of a sudden I think you see more pieces on the table than we right. typically give it credit for. I think sometimes we say, oh yeah, maybe there's a couple of things in in the New Testament. But you go with the lens expecting that God actually intentionally gave us a guide for this. And we're going to see, uh, wow, there's a, really a lot of places where this seems very intentional and very purposefully laid out for this. So that, that's what I would just kind of in that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great question. And I know I, I was wondering when you get to that question because I think there are a lot. Of, that is a very common question and a very common approach to the book of Acts is come on, we can't read Acts as normative, uh, and we do sometimes talk out of both sides of the mouth, don't we? we? Well, we're not necessarily saying that we're expecting Pentecost today. What about the gifts, the side gifts? Well, those weren't normative. So you always start, you do hear that kind of, I understand why that question's out there, uh, because we do have a cessationist 
position on certain things that says, no, it wasn't norm it's not necessarily normative that we should expect miracles, tongues of different languages at a worship service today. So the so I, I know you appreciate it, but I do appreciate the question. Having said that, I find that when I work through the book of Acts, and as y'all know, I appreciate it here, when I look through the commentaries, not to say about a third of them would have the position of don't read this too normatively. Whereas two-thirds would say, yeah, read it one week. Overwhelmingly, the distinction between the two was resolved if you, if you don't proof text Acts, but you read Acts within the context of Luke, mm-hmm. part two, and you read it and you do the job of exegesis from beginning of Acts to the end. And where that really, really comes out is the thesis of Acts and the way it's carefully narrated in chapter 1 and 2 is to demonstrate that the thesis of the temple of God being reinstituted in the New Testament. I mean, you know, the fact that they had to replace that 12th disciple, the fact that they had to set up all this, this stuff that was temple-oriented, so that everything that happens at Pentecost begins to focus on the reconstitution of Israel as now the church of God within a temple framework. And when that, when that happens, then you read Acts 15 later on, you go, huh, this is Sanhedrin. This is, this is exactly Deuteronomy 1, you know, Acts 6 of it. And then when you read Acts 15, that's exactly Acts 6, applied Acts to a controversy in Acts 15. So what ends up happening? So I would just say that there are some things in Acts that are not necessarily normative. But, the, but the, to me, the overwhelming uh, reason for why so many put polity into that category is they fail to read Acts holistically. And, and I would argue that the rest of Scripture gives us a guide as to what's normative and what's not. So it's not just up to us to determine right. what, what is normative. Uh, good. All right, so I, do, I know I'm, I'm over time, but I want to go quickly over the, the PCA um, handout that I gave you just to give you some orientation to our denomination and what this looks like. Uh, so it's this sheet here that says or, overview of church government in the PCA. Um, right on the top of that, that um, Presbytery here, Southern New England Presbytery, meets April 24th and 25th. I, I would strongly encourage you to to visit. I mean, it's local. It's right here on that. Um, the, there'll be business, I think, both days. I think they're, they're planning on having um, a docket for, for both days. Uh, but you'll really get to see it in action. Um, the, the first paragraph there, Presbyterian Church in America, um, talks about uh, graded assemblies or courts. We've talked about that already. Session, Presbytery, General Assembly. Um, it mentions here, again, this is all from their PCA's website, Parity of Elders, distinction between the two classes, teaching and ruling. Um, it has self-consciously taken a more democratic position, rule from grassroots up on Presbyterian governance in contrast for more uh, proletical form of rule top uh, assemblies down. Um, one real practical way that that gets institutes is um, who owns the church building, right? Yeah, I mean, we, the, it's, is it the session that, that owns it here? Is that how it's constituted? It's the, it's the corporation. Yeah. 
and the session is the board of that. Yeah. The congregation, the whole congregation. Congre congregation owns it rather than say if we all of a sudden wanted to move away, it's not the, the, the property of of the denomination. Um, that, that, that came out of our pulling out of the uh, mainline. Yeah, yeah. We were losing church. It was, it was pretty ugly, <laughs> yeah. There's a nice pragmatic thing going on with that as well. Yeah, but I, I think it works in, in other ways too, the, the preference to um, to what's happening on the ground um, in particular sessions and general assemblies. Uh, rather than General Assembly's uh, ruling abstractly. The uh, PCA ministry buildings uh, are in Lawrenceville, Georgia, um, the location of which most of the ministries of the denomination are coordinated. And here are the, there's four program committees, MTW, which is uh, missions, missionary work, work, overseas missions, Mission to North America, which is church planting, um, and, and other missions that are in the United States. Uh, Christian publication and education, those are some of the resources, and then RUF, which is which is the um, uh, college ministry um, of our denomination. One service committee, that's the administrative committee responsible for setting up General Assembly and, and coordinating it. And then five agencies. Um, and some of these have to do with money, retirement, um, the those sorts of things, to the colleges and the seminary. Um, so that's that's kind of the overview of the administration of our denomination. And then we have a general assembly. Now, um, committee of commissioners, these are commissioners that are sent by each presbytery, um, will send representatives that get to serve in general assembly that week, and they function on a committee. And the committees will review the ministry accomplishments and plans of that particular ministry um, with their reports and their recommendations. And both you see here the, the review and control and the, and the uh, uh, well, certain, certain of them, the, the appeals. And then you see which committees there are listed in, in bullets there. I won't go into all of it. So that's our, that's our general assembly. Um, all elders can go and be sent there. I think. Distinguish between assembly committees and permanent committees in that handout? No, I didn't. Um, maybe. Some committees are committees that just function. They receive reports in each of those information, each of those agencies, or categories like like. Uh, um, Arno, basically, their work is just for the assembly. They're they're a committee that brings recommendations to the general assembly regarding the work that's brought to the general assembly. That includes appellate stuff, everything. Then there's other committees that are permanent committees. I, I function out sort of one of those that are ongoing committees of the general assembly that function to support the work of the general assembly. Like I'm on the nominations, which is called the gatekeeper committee, but it's nominations. I who gets to serve on. The, the permanent committees, the nomination committee brings recommendations to the General Assembly to do that, and then they serve on those permanent committees, like RUF is a permanent committee. That's different from the, I don't know if did you, B and O, look at, you know, B and O, or these sort of committees that are in the General Assembly, just so you know that. Yeah. Um, 
I'm trying to categorize some of these things in the review and control versus um, appellate. the appellate stream. Like, how does how does something like mission to the world fall into that? Like, it doesn't seem like it, is it just review and control of what particular churches are doing, or like from bottom up? Is, was there some appeals process? Like, where, where does it fit in those categories? Or is it something different? It's a, a third thing. Yes, I mean, it, it, I know it's review and control because they, they go over minutes from particular... But it is, is it an entity that exists outside of... Kind of the picture I had was we have sort of these churches and you have the elders, um, you know, these, these presbyters who are... They, their, their function outside of the churches anyway and these other sort of levels are as appeal or as review and control. But this seems like a more of a thing in and of itself. So think of these minute these if you could, when you get to my handout, I'll list the permanent and the not and all those committees out for you. See, and he's just showing what that is. But he, here's the base, the best way I know to answer your question. Think of general civil. It is an appellate court. Um, it's it's a court that reviews and controls the work of the denomination as it it, it, it involves that level of federalism. Um, any motion that has to ha, will then be decided, any motion that comes from, pre, all business has to come from the Presbyteries. Okay? Um, any business that comes will be divided into, okay, is this a mission to the world-oriented bill? Is this a mission to the North America bill? Is this related to a college? Is this related to this? Is it related to that? So those assembly committees, that's why I want to make the distinction, has two jobs. One is to review and control the agencies that are under the General Assembly's authority, say Covenant College, all those agencies that he mentioned, because they're doing the work of the General Assembly in these certain categories, right? So one job will be to review that agency and to make sure it's in accord to our Constitution and bring recommendations to the General Assembly as to what that agency has brought to the General Assembly for motions. Does that follow you? But let me make the, so you got agencies and presbyteries. Mm-hmm. All these agencies that he listed are going to bring motions to the General Assembly. It's going to be processed through a General Assembly committee in order to bring a motion to the General Assembly as a whole to vote on what you want to do with what this agency says they want to do. Mission of the World says we're going to have a budget of $5 million. The General Assembly is going to approve it as it comes through, goes through the committee of the General Assembly. That's one way. The other way is Presbyterians bring motions to the, to the General Assembly. A Presbyterian motion could be something like, uh, we want to divide our Presbytery into two Presbyterians. That would be then given to the Mission to North America a, a committee to form a recommendation on that motion. It could be another motion regarding anything. It could be a constitutional issue. It could be a... a a judicial issue, and you've got different committees. You've got a judicial committee, you've got a constitutional committee, you've got all these different committees that these motions will be funneled into so that they can be brought to the general assembly. Does that help? It helps. I'm wondering about things like Covenant College or whatever. Where does it fit into Covenant College? Is an you know agency. I mean? but, but how do you get agencies? You know, like well, it, it, we, it's a ministry of the denominations. So think of a ministry. Hmm. Yeah, it's just a ministry of the denomination. So you've got a ministry. That it's directly accountable to the General Assembly. It's not a it's not a ministry of a presbytery. Or of a particular church. Or of a particular church. That's right. It's a ministry of the denomination. So Covenant College is a great example. That didn't belong to any presbytery. That didn't belong to any church. That's the whole denomination's scenario. 
it falls directly accountable to the General Assembly. Therefore, you have it's a, it, that's what each of those agencies are. They are directly accountable to the General Assembly. And now they bring, and they have staff, and they bring motions to the General Assembly for approval. And there's a committee set up by the General Assembly by which to process those motions. That's how that works. There's another set, though, I'm trying to make clear, there's another whole set of business that's going into it from an appellate point of view. So notice that agencies is not an appellate process because the original jurisdiction, if I can use the legal terms, the original jurisdiction of each one of those agencies is the General Assembly. So that's not an appellate process or review and control process. That's just a direct authority process. Which gets, yeah. Whereas the denomination, whereas all the Presbyterian-related stuff is funneled through then many committees, depending on what the topic is, also to be reviewed and controlled. Right. Yeah, and it gets a little messy. Things like RUF, like the head of it would get decided on a general assembly level, and yet particular candidates, say, in, a, in a one location would be... Uh, coordinated with that agency, but also the presbytery has to approve the guy and ordain him if he's coming in here. So there's a there's a relationship that, that works out that usually makes sense as it happens. But let me uh, let me just jump down to the general assembly. You can read that uh, right after that's the the Southern New England Presbytery, which is the presbytery we are a member of. Um, the roles of moderator, stated clerk, and treasurer are laid out there. I copy about all that stuff. Um, but then there are three ministry teams, and these three um, uh, handle most of the, the ministry business that we... I also There's a Portuguese liaison, which you can read about. I included that as well. But the missions team, um, proactive planning for church planting, cooperative evangelistic outreaches, um, campus ministry, outreach among the presbyteries, um, this team corresponds to the General Assembly organizations, MNA, MTW, and, and RUF. Shepherding team, um, this is responsible for the pastoral care. So what he talked about, the bishop being able to care for pastors, we try to do with the shepherding team, but I, you can probably figure out what the problem is with that because these people are pastoring their own churches and now have to say, okay, let's gather together and now pastor other pastors in our denomination as well, and is, is, is you know it's a lot. They try; they're doing a good job. I mean, but it's handling some of the pastoral and spiritual warfare issues. Churches blow up. You know, they're coming in there to, to deal with some of that. And again, these aren't people that are are not pastors. These are all pastors and, and ruling elders uh, from our denominations who gather together extra time from their congregations to do this work. Leadership development uh, team. I'm on that. Uh, team, you're on missions, and Craig, you're on missions. missions. Okay, um, you know leadership development. We credential people. We interview candidates that are going to get ordained. You get ordained not by your church, your, your particular congregation. You get ordained at the presbytery level, um, and I think we could probably at some time, point talk about the, the advantages of that, why that's important. Um, but you, you see what they're responsible for. Quick overview. It's good to have as a resource, and I think it will complement what he takes from the from Boko. That T. David Gordon thing. So look at your turn to me with page on page. Uh, I'm just going to show you what's in here and how I envision you using it. Um, so uh, starting on page 10, you have the chapter on synods and councils. 
And following that, I have a, a study guide. For those of you especially who are going to be pursuing ordination, you'll want to make note of that. But for all of you, you should make note of it because it's a, good, it's a teaching guide. And you know, if I had more time, I'd probably go through it. You'll notice the first one just wants to give you a, a, a biblical sort of a case study or, or where we would get this idea of councils in Scripture. Obviously, I'm looking at Acts 15. Uh, you've already handled that with this passage, with this book. But, you know, one thing to note of is just, you know, I go right through Acts 15 for you on page 11. And I show you how how significant, though, and you might remember the sermon I preached on this. But don't underestimate, this gets back to the original question, is this all important? I mean, you could make a case that the biggest turning point in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ was Acts 15. Now, you say, whoa, you mean bigger than Pentecost? No, not theologically. Bigger than Ascension? No, not theologically. But I mean from the standpoint of when the floodgates were unleashed, you had a major, major problem going on, and that was terms of communion. Who belongs to the Church of Jesus Christ or not? What do we expect of them? Do they need to become Jewish and then Christians, or can they just go straight to Christian and not become Jewish first? And some other various things. Acts 15 is an expression of everything we've talked about. And after Acts 15, I mean, boom, as we say these days, boom. I mean, the world got taken. And I give you that illustration there. And we see the same kind of amazing, just from a pragmatic or uh, you know point of view, you think of all the councils that come after the spirit of Acts 15, and I list them there for you. And each one of these councils can be described as major turning points that benefited the gospel. I mean, each of these councils, man, big issues. Now, the key thing about councils that you heard Kevin mention is they are not voluntary. Like, for how many people know about the Lausanne, Lausanne count, uh, thing? Y'all know about that? That's not a synod or council. That is a lots of individuals self-appointing themselves or appointing themselves more or less to go. And I think it's a great movement, by the way. It's a great movement. It's, it's what you would describe as non-denominational versus interdenominational. Though. What's interdenominational? Interdenominational means that specific, organized denomination churches sent a delegate to that assembly. That's called an interdenominational. A non-denominational is... I'm not there representing a denomination. I am, though, representing what I believe is Christianity. So I would suggest to you that the use of interdenominational today is almost always fallacious. When I hear that I don't know, Campus Crusade for Christ is an interdenominational ministry, they're not an interdenominational. They're a non-denominational ministry. Now, it's true. They may have members, staff members, let's say, who belong to different denominations. So you could describe them as having... But I just want to make that little nuance for you because it's important that what happened in Acts was a delegated assembly. They were delegates sent by the Church of Jesus Christ in sub-regional areas to go and represent their, their, their case to them. And the language there is very clear to, to illustrate that. Uh, whether it's appointment language, whether it's received language, they were received, and etc. So you go there... 
And then what I do is I go through and uh, with questions two through whatever it is, set or whatever, and just basically get you to interact with our Westminster Confession, Chapter 31. Uh, I do want to make sure you take the time to do that. Um, I do mention the Rastian controversy and what was going on there. You, you heard mention of that in, in number five. Make note of that. Um, and uh, and then you know we're, then then I put in there. Um, if you were, I tried to, I put this in here just for those. If, you know, I could, I told you to look over Boko, um, to skim it. Here is my version of what I would make sure you skim. In other words, I've actually done a, a job and said, okay, each one of these things are points that I think are fairly fundamental to our system that I've given to you here. So what I do, uh, you know, I go through the, what is a church court? And I go through some, just make note of some things there. I go through, uh, you know, the um, the church session, make some observations from our book of church order. I'm just quoting virtual church order for you, but I wanted to make sure you, if you don't see anything else in all of the book of church order, you see these things because they give some very important uh, principles as to how uh, courts actually are to function. Okay, so that's what we're doing in these last thirty minutes. Is I'm talking about. Okay, we've established that there's elders. And there are two classes at least. Uh, we have established that there are different, there's these presbyteries, and with now describes all of that and what you just did. Now I'm getting into the practice of all this. How do we practice it? And Book of Church Order gets, gives you a lot of information about that. Um, it's declarative, not, you know, we, we've taught, you'll see some of it as things we already talked about under church power. So then you go through the sessions, you notice, you go through the presbytery, what a presbytery is and how it's to function. You go through the General Assembly. Um, they, you, you see there what we just taught, principles for organization of the assembly. There are the principles right there that are underneath what we just talked about. The General Assembly shall have power. Here's the power that it has and doesn't have. So this gets, I think, to your question um, a lot. You'll see that and you'll say, oh, yeah, that's what I was asking. Um, you'll see the rules of assembly operation. Now, that's, that's a different document, but that's, okay, how does the assembly operate? And here's some of those key rules that you'd want to know. If you will read through that, this whole little summary that I've given you, you're going to have a, you know, a, a good first step of, okay, I think I'm starting to get the big picture here and how this whole organization that we call Presbyterianism in America works. All right? So that's all that is for you. Um, Notice the next page, 20. Um, One of the very significant movements in in America was in the 19th century called the church board controversy. Um, You can read through this. I put this in here for you as a summary of what was going on. Um, But the gist of it was this. And this, uh, again, I just referenced this a minute ago in our conversation. Um, so, so you're tasked with, I don't know, uh, you're, you're tasked, the church is tasked to plant churches in the world. Do you subcontract that out? Do you say, okay, let's go to ISM or whatever, some ministry, and, you know, some separate board, they called it back then, we, we'd call it like a campus, you know, something. Do we go to some board and we delegate, we say to them, okay, why don't you guys, uh, we're going to send you our church planning business, you know? And it's not under the authority of the church. It's just another separate thing and we'll use it as we want. An example of that may be, say, a seminary. I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. The PCA doesn't have direct control over the seminary. 
So therefore, um, when I went there, but they do have direct control over my credentials and over what I, how I'm going to be examined. So the PCA on that level says, we're not really concerned how you learned everything you need to learn, as long as you learned it. And if that seminary was suitable to help you learn it, we'll find out when you go through the exams, basically. And so there's a very specific system of exams, etc., looking for, does this guy subscribe, all that kind of stuff, right? But you can subcontract that out, you can say. Even if the church is responsible for training and teaching and discipling, there's so much that goes on in a seminary that goes beyond what the church necessarily has to have a position on. I mean, do we have a particular take on church history? That's authorized. Do we have a particular take on semantics and linguistics, etc., etc.? There's a lot of academics, if you will, going on. There's a philosophy of theology. There's a history of theology. There's a grammatical, socio-grammatical methodologies and doing exegesis, all of which are beside the good and necessary inference of Scripture, you could argue. What they want to know is confessional theology. See? Now, having said that, we do have a seminary directly under the authority of the PCA. I waffle whether that's a legitimate thing to do or not, personally. But if it is, um, what they're saying is, it is the responsibility of the church to train up ministers of the gospel, and we should have authority over that. Now, I gave you that example because it's a perfect example of how complex it can be. Uh, we've kind of said yes and no on that one. We've said yes we, want, we don't believe that a seminary should be, quote, a church board, if you put it in this term, i.e. a parachurch, a ch- something that does something for the church that's not under the authority of the church. That's what I mean by parachurch, which most people aren't parachurches, they're called parachurches. Most people are just religious organizations, have a worldview like the prison fellowship, and they're a ministry to, to prisons, and they have a great worldview, and yet they're not under the authority of the church. I mean, they're not doing something that is specific to a church. Something like, uh, I don't know, a hymnal publishing company for the PCA might be a better parachurch example. What they are is Christian organizations that we can approve or not approve in so many words. We can say, yeah, that's a good ministry if you want to go do it. But it's not under their authority. A parachurch, then, is something that's also not under authority, but it really is doing something for the church. So I could say, at the very least, Covenant Seminary could be a good parachurch ministry. Or you could make the case that it should be directly a church ministry. So did you see the three categories? I did it really fast because I'm looking at the time and I'm using it myself in trouble. you got religious organizations, Christian organizations, let's say. You got parachurch organizations doing something to the church that's directly to support the work of the church. And then you've got church. Now the big issue here with the church board controversy is what 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 when, where, why, you know, basically. And what they basically decide though is when it comes to things like church planting, or what we call missions, which always involves church planting if if you have a biblical view of missions in my mind, then um, it needs to be directly under the authority of the church. You can't have non churches planting churches. We, I got into that mess in Haiti, where there's a, a GCO, a, a, what do you call it, um, NGO, kind of planning churches. So before we would be willing to do that, we had to construct a very carefully worded document that said when it comes to this particular church that we're funding, it can only be governed by the church. And that's one of the contentions we have with them right now, is they didn't follow that document. But the point is, is, is uh, that's, that's, that's an example of this church board controversy. 
Um, so that you read about that if you want, and that's enough. So the last thing I wanted to do is just let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, how do we? Fifteen minutes here, but you know this this T. David argument uh, paper. And here's the one thing I want to get out of it. Then I'll see if you just want to go through it and do something. The most important thing that I think. I wanted you to get from this, and I hope you've read it or at least skimmed it, is a deliberative, intentional um, process of making decisions that is confessionally driven rather than all the other non-confessionally driven methods, if I could put it that way. In other words, to me, having a deliberative process is the end of session almost more than the result. Um, I had a conversation with one of our elders when he first came in about three years ago, four years ago. And uh, we were sitting there and talking, and this person was saying, you know, just, you know, just tell me what, you know, I wish you would just tell us what what we should do sometimes. I wish you would just go ahead and say, um, you know, bring this thing, this mo- you know, wanting basically for me, the moderator, to do more than moderate a deliberative process, but to actually drive the business and the solutions, etc. In other words, and then I explained to this person, I said, you know, what you're asking is for the church session to become a board. Where, and most of our men have served in boards, and well, you know what a board is. It's a fiduciary sort of a, of an event. It's something that's saying, look, we're here as a kind of check and balance. We're here to make sure that um, you, you don't, you, 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 that this trust that we've given you as a staff to represent the shareholders, Jesus Christ, we're here to kind of check it. You know, to check it off is so bring the business, bring the, 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 you know, that's what you do on a board, right? You have this huge organization. They're accountable to a board, a board who will then approve or not approve. But notice, it's a boards are limitedly, limitedly a creative, um, whatever the word, what, what word can I use there? They, they, it's, it's so different than what we're describing as a presbytery. Whether it's a session presbytery, now y'all use that word right, um, or whatever. Why? Because what we're saying, and this is so important for you, and I, I, I'm so glad some of the WLB here because I know we've had a recent issue where I think I didn't have a chance to explain all this, but now you get it. The purpose of session is to discern what truth is, to discern biblically what is good, what is wise, what is right, and not. To approve, notice what is good, right, and wise. To pass, to sign off on it and say, oh, that seems all right. Let's do it. After the staff has done a lot of work putting together proposals and grounds and all this other stuff. But it's, but that's a board. A fiduciary board. What we're asking a session to do is be the pillar of bulwark of the truth, according to Timothy. The church God, we believe, speaks through the church acting jointly. That means that there needs to be a a process, a deliberative process, wherein the scripture is engaged, studied, reflected upon by the session jointly, 
wherein various policies, motions, whatever, are not just approved but derived. You see? So it's true that, um, you know, so, so let me try to make this clear. To me, so I told this guy when we were talking, I said, look, you know what really satisfies me? I can't tell you how true this is, too. What satisfies me is that there was a deliberative process. The answer to me is not nearly as important. Now, it is. Don't get me wrong. I want the right answer. But when I, when there, I just fundamentally believe that God speaks, the way we know God's will is through the session acting jointly. And once the session functions in a healthy way, i.e. a deliberative way, discerning the will of God from Scripture and our, within our framework of a confessional system, I, I can go to bed at night and feel good. I can go to bed and say, you know what? My hands are washing someone. Even if the session chose against what I wanted to do, I have confidence that this church, that Jesus Christ has spoken. But if, if it's a performer, if it's a kind of, you know, quid pro pro, whatever you want to call it, you know, if it, if, in other words, if efficiency is the driving formula here, just get it to us as fast as you can get it to us so that I can not have to deliberate it, but I can just approve it, get up or down. Now, there's some things like that that are just obvious, and that's fine. Okay, I'm not trying to push this at every point. But that's, to me, a very dangerous session. That's how you get all the problems of, of denominationalism in coming at you that I see around the, the block. So that's what this paper is all about. I mean, so it kind of strikes you, doesn't it? Arguments and argumented fallacies, the primer for church officers, and the first thing he wants to tell you is a big issue, distinguishing matters of principle from matters of expediency. That's right. You know, we need to really ask the question, what is the principle, the theological, confessional principle driving this issue? Have we taken the time to discern what that is? Um, And why we argue or deliberate? We don't do it because we're argumentative. Uh, Granted, you do need to distinguish between being contrary. I mean, that's true. There are some things that that are, you know, motions that come to the session that are presented clear enough where there's been a narrative, the session's been working together for years, sessions have been working together a long time, probably dealt with a lot of issues. What happens is there's a kind of precedence building of principle that goes about. And it's true that it, some issues over time don't have to be deliberated quite so much because, oh, you know, we, we've dealt with this issue in principle before. We had a deliberative process about this before, and we know where we come down biblically, and we see this as like that. You know, that's fine. So I'm not asking that we have a big argument every time we have anything going on. What I'm saying, though, is that there are these situations where um, it's just very important that we don't just do it because the pastor says do it or the staff says do it. We really are in good conscience, every member of the session, and WLB to the degree they're helping the session, that we're in good conscience that, you know what, this is principled, biblically principled. And so when you get to all these how we argue and deliberate stuff and the different fallacies, um, uh, what he's basically going to argue is, is here are all the non-principled ways to make an argument. And you, you'd get that there. That's all he's saying. These are the non-principled ways. Just because Billy Bob, who happens to be a heretic, says it, doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because you could possibly guilty by association. Just because... If you took this too far, 
you could be a heretic, doesn't mean it's wrong. The slippery slope argument. You know, and off you go to some of these arguments. Some are clearer than others, granted. Some are obvious more than others. But I can tell you, over the years of working in our denomination, if we could just dismantle the slippery slope and the guilty by association fallacies, just those two, it would, it, we, would be, we would be in phenomenal shape. Because it's just too often... That, those are popular... See, and what's getting harder is we live in a culture that that's the only way we get information. And a popul- that sells popularism. You know, when you can just present an event the way CNN does, and it's just guilty by association, and it's just guilty by this and that and that, yeah, it rallies people. It creates passion. But what I'm looking for, of course, in a session is a deliberative process where we go back to the Scripture with the clothes of our confession wrapped around it, and say, what's really happening here? What's the biblical principle? And is this good or is this bad? Okay, I'll stop there. Questions, thoughts? Yeah. I had a question about the very last one, which is the, quote, people like X fallacy. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what it meant, because to a certain extent, I feel like that is totally the job of the session, to discern what the people in our church, the vernacular, as you say, of the people in this church. So, like, people, so, like, one could say, like, I mean, just as an example, it's maybe natural. Like, people where we live love yeah. country music. Yeah. So to exhibit that vernacular, yeah. we should have country style music and worship. Yeah. Um, here's, I'm trying to figure out how to say what I want to say. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, that's still not a principle that says do it or don't. The principle oh, okay. that says do it or don't is what I call the sac- in your case, to give that illustration. Yeah. And this is one of the critiques that Chris had. He, he wishes he had given a lot of illustrations through all this. And I can see that. But you're giving us one to say, is that what that is? And I say, well, no. What that would be is everybody likes this, so let's do it. Now, if you, if you thought that was a good way for a church to make decisions, you know it's not. Uh, we all know the narrow road and the straight road is the one that leads to truth, not the wide and popular road necessarily. Populism is more often than right not wrong. So, um, so the principle, though, what you would be saying is, so what I would be responsible for if I'm the motion builder, is, and the session would be responsible to require, or if they, they produce it themselves or whatever, is to say, now let's start with this idea that we talk about called sacramentalism. Where is the flesh of Christ? The flesh of Christ is the flesh of the people. Therefore, it's not, we need to, uh, if our ministry is going to be, deeply sacramental, we need to contextualize Christ to this particular congregation. Now, this particular congregation wears the socioeconomic, cultural flesh of X, and therefore X is their vernacular. And vernacularization, principally, is a good thing because of sacramentalism. You see what I just did? I started from a principle that says vernacularization is good. Once I say vernacularization is good... Now we're just making a discussion as to what is the actual actualization, vernacularization of this particular church that makes this be the best form. So you're right. It's a form. This is not speaking to form, per se. Okay. I, 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 I thank you. I yeah. That's a good question. Any thoughts on this, though? I mean, this just says so much, though, if I could just say that. that deliberation. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a time... There's a fine line between let's a deliberative, a, a deliberative process and just someone who likes to be contrarian. 
in some way the moderator has to be careful to say, you know what, I think we've, exa- you know, that's where a moderator steps in and stops it so it doesn't get too overwhelming. But generally, what, could be, what you don't want is a moderator-driven or a staff-driven session where we walk in with all the solutions and they're just saying yes, no. Because we have not entered the mystery of Christ's presence in the pillar of work of the truth process. There is a mystery here. But God speaks through the church acting jointly, not individual members of the church severally. At least not not initially. Okay, uh, you want to ask a question? I was just going to make a comment that, um, yeah, I thought this was great and that this process that you know we're not forgetting who we are, that we're servants of Christ, yeah. and Christ is the way, not us. That's right. And this idea of not being completed, because we're not going to actually be done till heaven. Yeah. And and so as we have ongoing situations to learn to rest, and that we're to be a pillar, we're to be faithful, and to rest in that. And no, we're just not going to be done. Yeah. And I think sometimes a board, you know, we want to be done, and, and that's. That, that's the problem. I mean, efficiency, uh, you know, we all love efficiency. We all th- love things to be done in, in order, in good order, you know, and there's a lot to say about that. But, you know, we've talked about it in a board, but this is a lot, another way of thinking about it is this is a live event. This is live. This is, this is the process of discerning. It's not approving. It's the process of discerning that's going on. And it means every session is a member of that process. Now, Again, I want to be careful. Uh, you can talk things to death. You, you can have, you know, that's where parliamentary sets in a little bit, just having at least the principles, and we should have probably put something in there about that. We don't, most sessions don't do a strict parliamentary by any stretch. Parliamentary is better and better as you get bigger and bigger. It's more cumbersome and more cumbersome as you get smaller and smaller. But generally, there are principles that drove uh, parliamentary. Which probably I would I have a cheat sheet I should have put in here right now, but but the principles like parity. Look, how do you know if the deliberative process is being complete here? Well, you make sure there is opportunity for pros and cons. You know, he starts off this whole paper. There's a way that seems right until it's cross-examined. So as a good moderator, you might hear a good strong argument for something. He will usually, and I hope I will, unless I just happen to know the session pretty well. But usually, you're going to say, well, "Is there is there a contrary? You know, is there another position here? Is there someone who would like to speak against it? Even if they don't want to speak against it, they're not sure they're going to vote against it yet. That doesn't mean that's what they're saying. They're not saying. I'm, and I would wish that all of the session and presbyters would restrain how they're going to vote in their conversations. You should say, "No, I can't vote for this." Well, you've already determined it, so just don't even talk anymore. In some ways, you know what I'm saying? This is supposed to be a deliberative process, which means we are suspending judgment until after the deliberative process is complete. So I would want you, if you're part of the session, to say, you know, I'm thinking through this, and maybe maybe an argument against this would be blank, 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 and blank. But they're doing that with a humility that says the deliberative process isn't over yet. So I I want to see if we have looked at those issues yet. Have we considered those issues because I'm still wrestling with that, and then if and then if someone over here says, "Good question," you know, "Good issues," you know, I actually been thinking about that, and here's how I've resolved it. Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. You see what you're doing? You're deliberating. You're 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 helping each other. And I would say nine times out of ten, good motions get revised in a sessional context. No, 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 about fifty-fifty, to be honest. 
depending on how good and thorough the motion is. Which, by the way, and I know Rick's heard me say this many times in our session, I just can't tell you then why and how important it is that if the session just, you know, and I say it's our session all the time, they know and they, they mean it. Um, why it's so important that there's a docket in advance, that there's an opportunity for the session to actually study that document, and most importantly, if there are items there, to bring motions. Because the motion originator is going to have is going to obviously control the way the conversation goes. How the motion comes is a very significant power thing. Now, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I just mean it's going to it's going to more or less drive the conversation, and and a good motion is going to be more efficient because it's taken the time to think through the pros and cons, and you can see the the principal deliberative process right there in front of your face. And if it's presented that way, and so the way you typically see it in a good court system, whereas, 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 you see what they're doing? Therefore, here's the motion. Now, that if, if you present a motion like that, what that means is you've just helped, you've just you've just taken 30 minutes off the process. At least 30 minutes off the process. If you've taken the time to draft a good motion. Because now the session can look at that and start evaluating those whereases. They're going right to the point. And they can see if they lost any whereases, but you've got a really big starting point. So this, this is really bigger than you think. <laughs> Just to think about this idea of how important a deliberative process is, what's our principle? This God speaks not to me individually, but to the church corporately. The, the church is called the pillar and board of the truth in Timothy 3, not the pastor, not a single elder or a single congregant. And we all know that arguments need, you know, that there's a pro and you've got to look at the new signs. Any questions about that and we're over? Or thoughts? If a motion is brought up that wasn't on the docket ahead of time and people don't have a good counter-argument, is, is, sometimes, is there time left outside of that? It depends. Does the session have to deliberate with what they know? Well, here, yeah, I can answer your question pretty quickly. Um, I say this too many times. The most important event, the most important thing that happens in a session meeting is the approval of the docket. Because whatever gets on that docket governs the church or not. Number two, um, the second most important thing is not to allow items on the docket that aren't approved. Now, I will confess, in a small session of five or six people, there's, you know, there's a kind of, uh, how do I say, all of these principles are true, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a moderation thing and, and a session thing to figure out how many, you know, what, what are some things we can all just know that everybody wants to talk about and let's just don't, let's don't tire us out with all these motions and procedures to get something on the docket when I can see there's a unanimous sense that this is an obvious thing we want to talk about. So there's, a, there's an art to this. Try understanding your session, when do you need to be formal, when do you not need to be formal. I certainly don't pretend to, to have a corner on that art. I suspect no moderator does. It's judgment calls all over the place. But here's the, the answer to your question in a very formal way. Every docket needs to be approved uh, before we start it so, because the docket controls the church. Therefore, the session has to decide what controls the church or not. If something's going to be brought in that is not, it is not a docket item, um, then we have to stop and say, okay, there's a motion here. Does everyone? First, you have to vote on whether we're going to second that motion and whether and, and whether we want that to be on the docket at all. Now, we kind of 
in our session meeting, if I when I moderated this, the, the press chair, I'd be very strict on that. You got 150 people. There's no way of letting anything go into that docket that hasn't been approved, and there has to be a special action press chair to approve it, or we'd be there for a week. But in a session of six people, you know, especially given the experience, the, the life issues in our session and all this, <coughs> knowing how oftentimes we haven't had a chance to think about things as much as we probably should have before we walked into that door, you, you're, you're a lot more lax. Why? Because at the end of the day, while it's not the most efficient way to do a session, I make a judgment, but the session has the power always to override the judgment of a moderator. Um, but you make a decision, you know, for the good of church, I'm just going to look the other way, basically, and let it go to the docket. And we do that all the time in our session meeting, maybe to, to a fault. But, yeah, that's – so does that mean – that helps? But, no, what's on the docket is very important and how it gets there. The other thing I'd say is – We've tried, I've tried to, to uh, insist that to, if for it to get on the docket, and this is another parliamentary rule, it, there has to be a motion. It can't just come, let's talk about Sunday school. Unless we want to go to what's called a, 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 a what is it called, a committee as a whole, where we're actually now becoming a committee, not a, a, a session. And you have to have a vote to do that. Before you can go to a committee, if you're doing parliamentary, you'd have to go. Now, I, I'm pretty lax on that because I just see guys are coming in. They're huffing and puffing after our day. Hey, guys, can we talk about blank? And I'm going to go, what am I going to say? No, we can't talk about it. You know, maybe I should. But, and, and the session can say that too, by the way. By the way, the whole session moderates itself. There's not a thing that the moderator has no power other than to, in some ways, recommend an order of which the session has to approve. And at any time, the session can say, call the vote. If they think the conversation is going too far, and at that moment, if a session member calls a vote, we have to stop business immediately. We have to deliberate whether we want to vote or not. There it is. So it's all under the control of the session. They can do anything they want to do acting jointly. The moderator has zero power other than to offer recommendations for moderating, basically, by the way he does it. So is that, I'm getting at all these yeah. complex things. So, but so once it's on the docket and, we, and, you, and you agree, and so then you start deliberating, um, nothing gets sort of parking lotted and said we don't have enough to deliberate on that until next time you you get through the docket. In Presbytery, when I moderated that, if someone says uh, if somebody stands up to speak to an issue and it's not on the docket, I'd rule it out of order. Um, and if the person says, well, I, I uh, you know I'd like to I'd like to talk about Sunday school, I would then direct us that we have to have a vote to. to get out of Presbytery, uh, out of what we're doing in Presbytery, and go into what's called a committee as a whole. That means we cease acting like a Presbytery for a minute, we're going to act like a, pres- a committee. And we're going to actually sit here and start crafting a motion. Ordinarily, if I if I had my preferences, I'm sure the session would have had, they had their preference, we would, every single thing that's on the docket would have would be in order, which means there is a motion with grounds uh, underneath it. And we're just literally walking through motions. Even if it's a motion that's just a but, but again, I can't. There's just so much I want to say here. But and unfortunately, you got a session that can be maybe once a month. You've got life going on in the life of the church. Things are happening fast. Decisions sometimes can't wait a month. Uh, sometimes these things happen, especially in terms of the docket formation. I must get more than half of my docket items from the congregation the day before or the day of, and I have to decide: Do I have? Am I going to put it on there, even though I don't have any of the due diligence from this that I should have? And a lot of times I do. Because at the end of the day, I want the church to keep moving. And um, so 
I'm giving you this nice highbrow view of, of, of how a session works, and I'm going to tell you that in reality, it gets a lot messier, and maybe to a fault, maybe not. It's just all depending on your point of view. Yeah. That said, I was thinking there was a part of that question that said if it's on the docket, does it have to be resolved at that night? And I have seen where there has been. Oh, things. that was and my question. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed the question. Understanding that if <laughs> no, if the session is feeling like they, I've watched this and 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 happen that if the session is feeling like they don't have enough information yeah. or need more time to to ponder through. Things can be tabled. Well, thank you for clarifying. Absolutely. At any moment, someone can make any motion, guys. The session is in control of itself. There's nothing that the moderator can do other than offer. It's almost like a, 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 he sets up and brings the docket that he thinks is to the best interest. But at the end of the day, it has to be approved. How long you talk about it is up to the session. How short you talk about it is up to the session. When you table it is up to the session. There are motions upon motions upon motions that any member of the session can make at any time that would control how the session functions. The thing that I'm forcing here is just remember what's a session. It's not a board. We believe that what's happening there is the mystery of the mediatorial presence of Christ as prophet, priest, and king in our midst. Speaking and and, and getting truth to the world through a deliberative process of a session. Acting on behalf of the church as a whole. And that's a very special, sacred thing to me. That the church is ruled by Christ vis-a-vis the session acting jointly. And jointly is just a nominal phrase if it's not truly engaging the session members in a deliberative process at some level. Now again, sometimes it's been a deliberative process that's part of the history of this church for years and we don't have to do it again and again and again and again and again. We all say you can say it and you can deliberate in one minute, maybe, just because you say, hey, this has to do with the principle of blank. We talked about that last year and uh, it seems to me that, that the, the right motion here is to do blank. We all go, yep, that's exactly right. We all know that. Let's get it done. And so there are a lot of mis- things that we do like that. But there are a lot of things that, that come out and we go, whoa, we haven't really vetted this out yet. And again, the thing that takes the longest time in sessions typically is when there's not motions. And so we end up acting like a committee of the whole, which takes a lot of time to wordcraft and all that kind of junk. Is it a majority vote that would determine whether a motion would be accepted or turned It depends. Um, there's some things that, te- that require a supermajority, th- but most things are majority. But like, I'm trying to think, what's a supermajority example to uh, to revisit a motion? If a motion's already been approved, it's done, business is done, you've got to have a supermajority to go back to that. Why? Because you can't let one contrarian hypothetically. I'm not saying the person's a contrarian. He may have a he may have a very good point, but you can't. You know, you could see in a political system how you know just just having a, a majority would sabotage the whole assembly. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it depends. There are certain lanes like that. But, again, I just want to emphasize, in a session the size of ours, uh, it's the principles that I try to govern by or, or moderate by. It's, it's not the steps. Maybe I've thought recently about going a little more to a more formal parliamentary, at least at some level, because we're starting to get bigger and the WLB is involved. So I've thought, well, maybe we need to do that. And so, okay, guys, we're out of time. Yeah. Did you say you had a, a short version of the parliamentary mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually helped craft one for the Presbytery. I don't know if it's still the Presbytery uh, thing or not, but I had a kind of, uh, we, we went together a little, here's our rules of Presbytery kind of thing that took a modified. I need to find that because that would be a good thing for us to look at.
There's a session probably right now. Yeah, y'all can leave. God bless you.